it was a thing of waiting to see when Buffalo was going to have their day in the news. Holding her husband's hand, Fragrance Harris Danfield recounted the moments after someone started shooting inside the top supermarket on Saturday. The customer service lead works in the store with her 20-year-old daughter who became separated in the chaos. She crouched down. She sat hiding at register six the entire time. She didn't come out until the police came. She was in the store. The day before the shooting, Lewis actually talked with the shooter for over an hour. I gave my benefit card, my um, keys to have the um, my um, bonus plus card. He went in and bought himself a, a, a Gatorade, gave me my things back. Everything was okay. We sat and talked, and I'm like, well, what are you going to do after this? Now, Peyton Gendron told Lewis he planned to go hiking after they were done talking. And before they stopped talking, he said, Are you going to be here tomorrow? I said, yeah, I'm going to be here at 5. He came at 2.30. But Lewis was at Tops on Saturday at 2.30 when Gendron arrived. Gunshots. Officials were quick to label the shooting as racially motivated because the suspect reportedly posted a 180-page rant detailing the planning of the killings and attributing it to white supremacy. Gendron hails from Conklin, New York, which is in Broome County, upstate. He had one previous encounter with police when he threatened to shoot up his own graduation at Susquehanna Valley High School. Records show he was taken in for mental evaluation last year, but not arrested. The attack live streamed online, centered on a theory that white people are being replaced. That's according to a 180-page document found online believed to be written by the alleged shooter months ago. So why was it not forwarded to police? When you talk to people on Jefferson Avenue, you get a range of reactions and a range of theories. But there's one common denominator. Everybody is angry. I feel it's a the shame that uh, the Buffalo police haven't done anything about this. Uh, most black men in the neighborhood I really fear walking around now. They don't know when they can come out day or night. But there was also a stark double standard in policing here, because when faced with the deadliest shooting of the year and a suspect who is literally still holding a gun used to allegedly kill 10 innocent people. Well, at that moment, police were at the highest possible legal threshold for firing a weapon, for using deadly force. And they didn't. By contrast, two months ago, Buffalo police used deadly force on Dominique Thomas, shooting him when he had a mental health episode and was reportedly seen with a knife. Last year, Buffalo police used deadly force to shoot at Willie Henley, a 60-year-old homeless man who was accused of swinging a bat at an officer. Neither of those people had a gun. Neither were accused of killing a person, let alone 10 people moments before. But... They were both black. Yo, man, they gotta stop this stuff, man. I'm serious. They come out here and they're gonna kill people up, right? They're doing all this. The police department ain't doing too much about it, I guess. Ain't caught nobody yet. If it was a black I mean, man, he would have I mean, been yeah, under the jail. Been That's under all the I jail. can say. We've been under the jail. The state has suspended without pay a corrections officer suspected of crudely mocking the victims of Saturday's massacre at a Tops Markets in Buffalo in a despicable social media meme. The State Department of Corrections and Community Supervision said it was seeking to terminate the employee, who was not identified in a series of department tweets. However, screen grabs that circulated widely online indicated the meme was initially shared by someone named Greg Foster. State payroll records show Gregory C. Foster, too, is a corrections officer at the Attica Correctional Facility, 
earning $185,482 in 2020. The offensive meme shows a photo of a Topps Markets above the words, Clean up on aisle 3, no wait 4, also on 7, 9, and 13. Foster punctuated the meme with the comment, too soon? This should weed out some FB friends, followed by a laughing emoji. A white supremacist is accused of driving more than 200 miles from the southern tier to Buffalo to kill as many black people as possible in Buffalo. A Buffalo 911 dispatcher is off the job tonight for her handling of a call from someone inside the top store during that shooting. The Erie County Executive says the woman has been placed on administrative leave and he's aiming for her firing. County Executive Mark Polinkar says the call came from inside the tops, Jefferson Avenue, and the caller was whispering, so the shooter could not hear her. That caller says the dispatcher hung up on her, although polling cars could not confirm who hung up first. Still, the county executive says what happened on this call was inappropriate and unacceptable. A wooden cross was set afire tonight at the corner of Brunswick and Jefferson. We arrived as Buffalo firefighters were dousing the flames. Councilman Herb Bellamy said he was shocked by this latest incident. I really don't know what to say at this point. So close. Uh, this going to frighten the community more now, I think. I really don't know what to say. This is the first time I ever saw a cross burning in my life. This was cold. It was calculated. It was cruel. It was very intentional. This neighborhood was targeted because of the high black population. And that's what's so chilling. How cool can she be? She's from Buffalo. And what's wrong with Buffalo? <laughs> the Cows, Gusty Renegade, in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Sunday, June 12, 2022. So I have been told. Lots to say. Again, it would take a long time to detail all of the segments uh, from that clip. Buffalo, just to emphasize, many of those segments are not related to last month's East Buffalo Tops Grocery Store White Supremacist Massacre. Domestic terrorism, as they say. Uh, Some of those clips, the cross burning and such. That is from decades ago in Buffalo. Context, very, very important. Uh, There's been so much dialogue uh, and should be deserved discussion uh, and hopefully honest, accurate discussion about why 10 black people died, 13 people shot, 11 of them black uh, at the East Buffalo grocery store, which wasn't even a quality grocery store. Incidentally, that cross burning was on Jefferson. You heard that's the same street as the Tops Massacre. Anyway, as we were preparing for last week's program with Anna Blotto talking about some of this history of racism, white supremacy in Buffalo, I was doing research online and I found her work and then bumped into, I just saw the image of the book Hooded Nights on the Niagara 
the Ku Klux Klan in Buffalo, New York. I said, my goodness, like, this book should have been, you know, plastered all over the television screens and what have you. Like, hey, let's put this all into context, like everything about this incident so we can grasp why did this happen? And particularly, hey, if this region has a history of white supremacy racism, which would explain why Peyton Gendry could think, oh, yeah, there'll be lots of black people concentrated on this dilapidated side of East Buffalo. There is a reason for all of that. Uh, One paragraph I thought would be a great starter for our broadcast today. One of the main points of the book uh, that we're discussing uh, written. This is on page 145 in the conclusion. The community included large and politically empowered ethnic populations that were intensely anti-Klan. The major newspapers consistently portrayed the KKK in a negative light. The invisible empire's enemies commanded the resources of Buffalo government. And after May 1923, the Klan existed beyond the pale of the law. Yet, despite these and other problems, the hooded order succeeded in attracting a sizable following among the eligible white male population. Considering the risks posed by clan membership, the high cost of dues and fees, and the limited privileges of knighthood, the appeal of the clan in Buffalo seems nothing less than remarkable. Although the KKK was far from an admirable organization, it clearly inspired an impressive amount of commitment, discipline, and solidarity. Buffalo, New York, not Alabama, not South Carolina, not Florida, Buffalo, New York. Our guest for today's broadcast, as I stated, author uh, of the very book uh, that I just read from, uh, Hooded Nights on the Niagara. Uh, He is a professor of history uh, at Coker University down in South Carolina, which just seems like we've just talking about South Carolina. Seems like we're always talking about South Carolina. In fact, they did mention Dylan Storm Roof, South Carolina. Anywho, uh, a hoot to have our guest on the program with us live today. Joining us, Dr. Sean Lay. Dr. Lay, are you with us, sir? I'm uh, here. Thank you so much for sharing a bit of your Sunday evening with us. Uh, For our listeners, this might be their first time hearing about you and the work that you do. If you'd like to give a brief introduction, anything you think it would be important for listeners to know about you and the work you do? Oh, sure. Uh, Well, I'm a professional historian. I just recently uh, retired, uh, so I'm a professor emeritus. But I've written three books about racial and religious intolerance in the 1920s, focusing in on on the Klan. But the thing about the Klan that some people don't recognize is that there was an original Klan during Reconstruction that uh, was very powerful in the South and dedicated to suppressing particularly black voting rights and and moves towards social equality. But that Klan was eventually crushed. Then there's an even larger clan in the 1920s, six million members across the entire United States with uh, 
huge chapters in places you wouldn't even expect them, including Washington State, uh, where you had some rallies there with 10,000 people or, or so. And it was much more of a broad-based kind of mainstream uh, type of organization, definitely racist, definitely bigoted. Some of the chapters did terrible, terrible things. But for the most part, it was mainstream. It it didn't get people down at the bottom society. It was mostly white, middle-class, uh, kind of like uh, Kiwanis Club members for the most part. But that clan died out at the end of the 20s, and then uh, ever since the uh, Civil Rights Movement, we have these kind of smaller clan organizations, which are definitely marginal, very, very vicious, very dangerous. And so we have groups uh, such as the Southern Anti-Poverty Law Center uh, keeping an eye on them as much as possible. Hmm. Much obliged for the introduction. Folks can check out some of Dr. Lay's other books uh, other than the one that we'll be discussing today. Incidentally, we have had uh, guest Mark Potok as a guest on the program with the Southern Poverty Law Center. I suspect they, too, practice racism, white supremacy, especially his conduct on the program. They didn't even have a definition for justice. And this is an organization with a lot of lawyers. Anyhow, uh, speaking of definitions right in line, this year program, uh, we ask all of our guests right at the very beginning just to think it's so important. Uh, I use the term racism and the term white supremacy. I use them as synonyms and I use the same definition for both terms. The definition I use is as follows. A global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white. Do you think such a system exists? Do you think that definition is accurate? Well, uh, are, are you basically saying that racism has to be white people trying to achieve dominance? Because, I mean, there, in world history, there's been other races that believe that they're superior. I mean, you look at the Japanese uh, prior to World War II and so forth. But the, but the key thing, of course, about white racism, and it's not just American, it was also, you saw it in the colonial system under the British and the other European powers, is, uh, you know, that uh, the white race is the most advanced, the most civilized, and it basically has this God-ordained uh, mission uh, to suppress uh, and control other groups. So certainly historically, uh, that would, uh, your definition would probably work in most cases. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Incidentally, that's so interesting. We were just talking about Japan and World War II in a variety of ways. Most importantly, Dr. Gerald Horn, race war. I have never heard the term Japs used so much <laughs> in my life. Incidentally, I think the whole premise of that war was Japan was fighting against the system of white supremacy but that is in the archives and one of the best books I've ever read Dr. Gerald Horn 
race war just on the program. Incidentally, Dr. Leigh, did you say you are a white man? If I did not ask, that's my bad for listeners. Are you classified as a white man, uh, Dr. Leigh? Yeah, I uh, I am white. Okay, good to know. Uh, let's see. I've asked many of our white guests over the years we are in a system of racism, white supremacy. Uh, I've concluded. Do you think it is logical for anyone who is classified as not white to be suspicious of anyone classified as white, even you, as long as there's a system of white supremacy, racism? Oh, sure. I, I, uh, I, I don't know if it has to control your every single thought, but I mean, even if it isn't true, let's just say that theoretically, I can't blame anybody when they look at the historical record for being suspicious. I mean, when there's been bad behavior for centuries and centuries, why should you suddenly, you know, say that it's, uh, I'm going to approach life with, without recognizing those historical uh, realities? So, uh it uh yeah i that that is certainly understandable right on uh as a uh professional historian and just looking at those historical realities uh have you seen any evidence that a substantial number of individuals classified as white are going to permanently and voluntarily desist from the practice of white supremacy racism well, that, that kind of comes to the big question that you, you've probably heard it on your show repeatedly that, you know, in so many ways things have gotten better and, and stuff like that when you compare it, you know, to the real hard-edged Jim Crow of uh, of uh, past times. But I, I, I'll be honest with you. I I think that most of the racism that we have today is a lot more subtle. Um, there's not the social acceptance of overt racism that there used to be but in many ways it's it's done in a more subtle uh, fashion uh, and obscured by uh, uh, by individuals that hold those racial sentiments and I guess the proof in the pudding is and you may have talked about this on your show is that in private white people speak a lot differently about race than they do in a public venue where there's all these social sanctions and so forth. So I think that stuff is still there. And unfortunately, and I realize we're dealing with a, just a hideous character, this Buffalo shooter, but to some extent, that may be a reflection of, you know, the, the part of my expression, the crap he's been hearing, you know, in private throughout his life. So he's kind of physically acting on these sentiments that are there below the surface and so it uh, how you get rid of it i i really i really don't know it's a it's a very vexing problem we've indeed heard that from a number of folks as well as one of our regular questions what do white people talk about when there are no non-white people present? We'll ponder on that mm -hmm. for sure. But I don't I didn't get an answer to my question, Dr. Lay. And I found that that is one of the ways that white people 
regularly practice racism, white supremacy is not answering questions when non-white people question them about racism, Mm -hmm. white supremacy. So my question again, sir, is do you think that a significant, just as a professional historian, is there any evidence that a substantial number of individuals classified as white are going to voluntarily and permanently discontinue the practice of white supremacy racism? I think they might say that they're going to, and they may even really feel that. You, you've probably encountered so many white people that say, I don't have a prejudiced bone in my body and stuff like that. And when I hear that, I just cringe, and I think they need a little bit more self-reflection. Uh, I think they've maybe kind of sublimated you know, racial sentiments there into a way that almost uh, uh, deceives them. Exactly, exactly what it would involve, I mean, this changing of, of hearts and minds, I, I, I really don't know. But uh, whether things are getting better or getting worse, I guess that's the fundamental question that you're basically asking about. Uh, I, hang on, Dr. Dr. Lay, because I did not ask if things are getting better or worse. This even is mm-hmm. is curious because I generally don't get this much resistance where I have to ask this many times about this question. That is puzzling. This is a yes or no, and then you can give okay. any explanation. So yes or no, as a professional historian, do you see any evidence that a substantial number of individuals classified as white are going to permanently and voluntarily discontinue the practice of white supremacy racism? I, my answer is no. Much much for that. Then you could have qualified. That's, that is for listeners, for non-white listeners, victims of racism. That, when I just said, that's the type of white supremacy that I see on a very regular basis, you shouldn't have to ask a question that's that simple that many times because that is so important. If there's no evidence that a substantial number of white people are going to stop voluntarily practicing racism, then all of our thoughts and theories about how to solve this very vexing problem have to reflect the fact that, hey, as the definition states, white people are dedicated to white supremacy racism. That is critically, critically important. So much obliged for the answer. And if you don't agree with something, you know, that's totally fine. We can give some pushback. Just tell us your views. But, yeah, just make sure we get an answer to the question. That is super, super important, uh, Dr. Lay. Uh, and even for listeners, Jim Crow, I did just say that yesterday. Jim Crow, like, oh. If we're talking about terror, Peyton Gendron, that is not Jim Crow. That is terrorism. Words are very important. Uh, did I read? I want to make sure I didn't read bad information because they do. You know, the Internet will get you sometimes. Are you were you born in Louisiana, Dr. Lay? Is that true? I was. I was born in uh, Raceland, Louisiana. Hmm. OK. Is it impolite? Because can I ask how old you are? Is that if you don't want to tell us, that's fine. <laughs> I'm 68. 68. OK. Okay, born in Louisiana. Uh, 
Uh, not that I'm deviating from the book, but I mean, this did just happen a couple of days ago. Did you by chance see that report about Louisiana state troopers? They're being investigated for a pattern of white supremacy, racism, targeting black male motorists. Did you see that? No, but I left Louisiana when I was six months old. So I haven't really kept up with the news on it, but no, I haven't seen that story. Okay. I, no uh no pop quiz or anything like that just thought i would ask since i did see that and that was like within the last two or three days so i mean that's super recent no penalty for not catching that but we talked about that yesterday on the broadcast uh black miss andrew uh, and they said that this was something historic they haven't investigated state troopers in decades uh they said for a pattern and in fact the representative for the louisiana state trooper said he welcomed the investi- uh, investigation because I think he said 67% of the cases of use of force were against black motorists. They didn't give the breakdown of black males, but the lead of the article was black males targeted. So, yes, Louisiana, lots to research. Um, before we get to Hooded Nights on the Niagara, now getting to Buffalo, whole reason that we are here. Uh, I have not heard your book mentioned at all over the past week. I also have not heard anything about Joseph G. Christopher, uh, also super important to the history of Buffalo. Are you familiar with Joseph G. Christopher and why he's important to Buffalo and even the massacre that just happened? Uh, No, I'm not acquainted with that. Wow. Okay. That has been unanimous. All the people that we've asked, white and non-white, and even people in your same age bracket have said the same thing they are not familiar or they like if somebody gave them going to be a million dollars if you could tell me right now why is Joseph G. Christopher relevant to what just happened at Top Supermarket no one that we've talked to thus far including myself would have got that million dollar prize this is from the Atlanta which is in my view an act of white supremacy racism by the journalist unless Gusty Renegade is amazing and should get all kinds of prizes and stipends and everything else but I mean geez the New York Times covered Joseph G. Christopher very well as did many many media outlets around the world Uh, I am reading from the Atlanta Constitution this is August 22nd 1983 not ancient history Uh, the title is Buffalo is now a city of fear Chet Fuller black journalist He writes, I have not been to Buffalo, New York in two years, but still it scares me. It is a bleak city, an aging one with rutted streets and once grand buildings going to seed physical declines, which parallel its crippling breakdown in race relations and the almost total erosion of trust and cooperation between its black community and its predominantly white police force. When I was there, nearly everywhere I went, I picked up on a foreboding sense of decay and despair. Unemployment was high, particularly among blacks who make up more than 25% of the city's population and are mainly confined to the old central sections of the city. The site of Buffalo's worst slums. It was a particularly gloomy time, the spring of 1981, in the midst of widespread panic generated by a puzzling series of slayings of black males. 
Because the seven victims were shot with a small caliber pistol, the media dubbed the mysterious assailant as the 22 caliber killer, Joseph G. Christopher, and a kind of gruesome lore sprang up around this mystery man, exacerbating the tensions between the black and white communities. KKK hate literature was distributed throughout the city in the form of licenses to hunt coons and back to Africa boat tickets on the Coonard ship line. Black police officers reported seeing composite drawings of the murder suspect on bulletin boards in some of the city's precinct offices with My Hero and Man of the Year written under them, precincts, plural. That was in 1981. A suspect has since been arrested, Christopher. He has been judged not fit to stand trial, but the killings have stopped. Still, word from friends in the city and news reports since since then indicate things have gotten worse. Buffalo has become the dark side of the American dream. Now, I just read this report because they mentioned the KKK literature, but within all of this, in the months before they caught Mr. Christopher, there was a cross burned on Jefferson Avenue, the very same street of the Topps grocery store where there was a shooting mm-hmm. at just last month. And Mr. Christopher his string of murders all targeting black males and dark-skinned non-white males his string of murders started at an East Buffalo Tops grocery store in September of 1980 he killed a 14 year old black child Glenn Dunn that's why I said I think it's this is not just the whoops bad journalism this is an act of white supremacy racism I wanted to get your thoughts just because I think people would hear this very differently if it was reported around the world accurately a white supremacist gunman comes to an East Buffalo grocery store to hunt black people again what are you Yes, that's absolutely amazing that nobody reported on that. That's beyond belief. And uh, I don't know. You're in a better position than I am to publicize that, but that's uh, an incredible story. I I lived in uh, Buffalo from 1988 to uh, 1992. I taught at... uh, SUNY Buffalo there. That's why I got interested in the story of the Klan back in the 20s there. But I had uh, never heard of that my entire time there. Now that is amazing for so many, particularly the work that you're doing. You even answered my questions about how you got into all this, but to live there uh, and to be there in the 80s when this was, I mean, he had just, Mr. Christopher had just been convicted. It took so long for them to catch him and then the, it mm-hmm. was in court for years. He was declared incompetent and he's insane. He can't stand trial. So it was delayed for years and they burned a cross or crosses. Clan literature was distributed in the eighties around this incident. And uh, they had 5,000 people marched at city hall 
in October of 1980 around. I didn't even read all of it. Two of the black males, he didn't just kill them. He removed their hearts. I didn't even read all the details. That's why I say it is appalling, both that no one said, hey, you're going to research the Klan. You should look at what happened with Joseph G. Christopher. My God, they talked about this all over the world. And the fact that this hasn't been mentioned at all now, just I guess before I pivot to your book, which all of this is very relevant, I hope listeners grasp. Uh, I unfortunately am not in a better position to share all of this. One, I am on the opposite side of the continent in Washington state. Uh, and then two, I am widely regarded as a worthless Negro from Virginia where people do not really system of white supremacy. So you as a white man, professor emeritus and a professional historian would have way more cachet to discuss this, particularly you lived in Buffalo. So, I mean, yeah, system of white supremacy. No one cares what I have to say. Um, You know what it sounds like is if there's a, enterprising graduate student out there, maybe African-American graduate student, that'd make a great dissertation topic to look at, and particularly how it's uh, basically been forgotten or buried or the complicity of the press. Boy, that's a great topic. If I still had grad students, I'd put one on it right now. Don't you think so? I mean, I'm I'm talking about a book that could could come out in a couple of months i've said that i've said can i get a stipend to go to buffalo can i go dig through the art because there's so (laughs) much material on this it's not because this case was not reported i have there's hundreds hundreds of reports in every publication you would like to find nightline did a whole piece on this and other media outlet jesse jackson came jimmy carter when he was president talked about this Uh, i mean it was widely they got all kinds of attention and Mum, nobody has a word to say about this now that Peyton Gendry and anyway, long discussion book club. We are reading about this, but yes, Gusty would love to go to Buffalo to research and write that their book that Dr. Lay just mentioned. Uh, so you answered one of our questions about why you wrote this here book to begin with hooded nights on the Niagara, Niagara, you living in the Buffalo area and then teaching uh, at SUNY Buffalo and, and getting interested uh, in the clan's history in the Buffalo area specifically. Um, did you, Oh, I already got that one. Uh, let's see. Do you, Oh my goodness. <laughs> Before I guess we even get to Buffalo specifically, when I spoke with you on the phone and it's mentioned very early in the text. And then today I'm getting my current events in while we go through your text. So today it was reported that in Idaho, make sure I pull up the correct report here. Today it was reported in Idaho. Uh, 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 there we go. Dozens of white supremacists, and this is what the report says, New York Times, dozens of white supremacists arrested in Idaho had planned to riot. Authorities said members of the right wing group Patriot Front who were charged on Saturday were preparing to disrupt a nearby pride event. So this was today. I saw this in New York Times. I told listeners the Pacific Northwest is uh, Montana, Washington State, Oregon, Idaho and a little smidgen of Canada. So that was in the New York Times today in your book, Hooded Nights on the Niagara. 
very early in the text you talk about our region before you even get to Buffalo and saying you already talked about this to somewhat the response was remarkable within a matter of months dozens of thriving claverns had been established in California and the Pacific Northwest Idaho Colorado was well on its way to becoming a clan stronghold and tens of thousands were donning hoods and robes in the Midwest even in New York and New England the invisible empire seemed to be making considerable gains uh, again I say all the time racism white supremacy is global I don't think people think of Idaho and Oregon as clan hotbeds why do you think it's important to correct that that in, that, that lie well the the state of Oregon in particular is one of the crown jewels of the invisible empire. When you look at the percentage of white males that belong to it, it's astronomical. It's up there with Indiana. So it's it, the Klan just recruited people there by the, the tens of thousands. But if you go into Oregon history, they have longstanding racist traditions there prior to the 1920s, and I mean, at one point the state wouldn't even allow uh, black people to move there. I mean, uh, it, it's no surprise that a white supremacist organization would have a, a ready uh, audience there, and very, very racist place. Uh, there's a historian named Linda Gordon that's from Oregon, and she recently wrote a book uh, about the Klan and. Uh, she she noted the just the the racist practices and traditions that that were there. Today we think about Oregon as being you know progressive and left leaning and and stuff like that, but historically it's certainly uh, not the case. California as well. I feel like I just said that. Uh, yesterday they did in fact have Governor Ronald Reagan before he got to the White House as well as changing all those gun laws uh, with the Black Panther Party long history uh, in this uh, the whole Pacific Coast in fact California to Washington State where Gus is uh, on that same yeah. page uh, and you talked about some of this information before I just I felt obligated to mention this every time Birth of a Nation is mentioned from now on with some of our guests and their projects I'm mentioning when they visit us so so this is on the same page that I just read from in your book. Uh, you write, uh, the United States found, uh, first and foremost, importantly, the KKK's claim that the values of native-born white Protestants should predominate in the United States found a ready audience from Maine to California. Strong strains of racism, nativism, anti-Catholicism, and anti-Semitism had long influenced American national life, and they were particularly influential during the early 1920s, a time of growing concern over race relations. The impact of foreign immigration and the influence of religion in politics. The Klan also benefited from the romantic image of the original KKK that had been planted in the public's mind by David Wark Griffiths, 
immensely popular film, The Birth of a Nation, screened at the White House, shown repeatedly across the country after its premiere in 1915, Griffith's epic portrayed the first clan as a manifestly noble group that had saved white civilization during a dangerous period from raping Negroes. Now, non-Southerners, if they were willing to pay the Invisible Empire's $10 initiation fee, could for the first time personally partake of the mystery and excitement of the Klan movement. So even in Buffalo, the birth of a nation was a popular recruiting tool? Oh, yeah. Uh, The birth of a nation was the most popular motion picture ever made up to that time. Uh, They continued uh, to show it. It came out in 1914, I think, but all the way through the 20s and even into the sound era, because it's a silent film, but people would still go even if there wasn't sound. And have you seen The Birth of a Nation? Oh, I've seen enough of Gus T. Renegade, no accident. I've seen enough of it. The Raping Negro. In fact, man, we were talking, they mentioned the movie Death Wish. I've seen enough of Birth of a Nation in Death Wish. They have a scene where a white woman is going to be raped by black males. Echo, echo. Instead of being, oh, it's gang raped. I'm sorry. She's going to be gang raped to a group of black males. And so instead of being raped again, she jumps out the window and plummets to her death. And I said, hmm, where have I seen that before? This is in Death Wish 2 with Lawrence Fishburne from The Matrix, no less. Yes, I I have seen uh, The Birth of a Nation, sir. Gusty Renegade. Well, imagine that people back then, many of them had never been to a movie before. So suddenly they hear something that seems so real up there. And what they see are these horrific racial images. You know, the, the white heroine is attacked by uh, uh, what they try to say is a fair-skinned black person. It's actually a white actor in, in blackface there. But at the end, you've got this triumphal rescue that is done by the Klansmen on horseback and everything. And that's, and people felt this is history. Heck, the president of the United States, Woodrow Wilson, who was a historian, said this is writing history with lightning. And so that was the image that people had of the Klan. Now, the Klan in Reconstruction was one of the greatest criminal enterprises in all of American history. Over 6,000 people were killed by the original Klan in hideous, brutal uh, way that's beyond belief. When I teach about Reconstruction, some of the stuff is so bad, I can't even lecture on it. I mean, just the sheer depravity and sadism. But here, several decades later, you got a movie making these monsters out to be noble heroes. So when the second clan is set up, starting in 1915, that's the image that a lot of Americans have of it. I think this is a good, noble organization, and it's being revived and and stuff like that. So that was that was part of the bill of goods that would be sold by the the organizers in the 1920s in places like Buffalo. You go to Buffalo, everybody had seen uh, the birth of a nation by that time. Almost all Americans had. It was the first major blockbuster in all of uh, cinematic history in the United States. Context of white supremacy. Again, our guest, professional historian, author, Dr. Sean Lay. 
uh, again, reading a little bit from Hooded Knights on the Niagara, uh, you write, uh, the recent body of work suggests that the KKK was much more of a, you use that word, mainstream organization than was once mm-hmm. believed, and that Klansmen, although assuredly racist and bigoted, were average citizens in the context of the time. My word. Indeed, a major theme of this new scholarship is that the intolerance that characterized the KKK pervaded all levels of white American society in the 1920s. My question, you certainly can give us more detail about that, but my question is, is that still true today, 100 years later? (laughs) Uh, Absolutely. You, You want a succinct answer? There's one. I mean, that is so true, and it's been one of the things that's irritated me throughout my uh, my life here here's the little trick you'll see in the white community and I'm sure Gus you know you know about this is that when white people white society are denying racism and bigotry they always go it's those dumb rednecks down at the bottom it's these ignorant low-class prone towards violent type stuff and and people who are educated and sophisticated and cosmopolitan uh, don't embrace any of that stuff. And so it's a, a lower class phenomenon. And for a long time, historians did the same thing when they wrote about the Second Clan. They said this is, a, this is without any evidence whatsoever. And they, uh, they said this is a movement of uh, people down at the bottom. They're beset by economic anxieties. Uh, emotional instability, stuff like that. And so one of the things I was able to do and other historians have done is I I really lucked out in the case of Buffalo. I got a membership list, a complete membership list, which had been stolen out of the Klan offices and put on display. And guess what? Do you remember how much it cost to join the Klan? You mentioned it a little bit ago. Was it like ten bucks? My yeah, memory, yep. you know what ten ten bucks in nineteen twenty is today. Oh wow! I bet that's like five hundred bucks. At, I would guess I could do it. Let's exactly. see. Exactly. How many organizations would you join for five hundred bucks? <sighs> Not too many. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, when I when I see something, it's like twenty bucks. I think about it. But these guys are paying that much, and you're going to be telling me they're a bunch of Ignorant, impoverished rednecks down at the bottom will look at the membership list. And the membership list provides almost a perfect cross-section of the white middle class. Now, the Klan is racist. The Klan is bigoted. It's uh, about as nasty a thing as, as you can have. But who's paying that money every month to be a member? It's people in the middle class and upper middle class. And so it makes the point, doesn't it, that racism, bigotry, suffuses white society, uh, including those people that always try to deny it up at the top. You know, in in academia, we always have a lot of people that are saying, you know, that uh, they're so uh, politically enlightened and stuff like that. But you ought to see the stuff that they vote on and, and, and say in private and so forth, it, it's really kind of a con job. 
But uh, the good the good news was once you have the membership list, you can make a, a solid case that it did infect uh, the entire mainstream. Spirit of Dr. Francis Cresswellsing with us so strong. Once again, what do white people talk about when there are no non-white people present? And again, just making the point right in line with what we heard from Dr. Lay. I'm just going reading from the pages. This is on page uh, 16 uh, of Hooded Nights on the Niagara. Dr. Lay writes, race also divided the Buffalo community. By 1920, there were nearly 5,000 blacks in Buffalo, most of whom lived in the 6th and 7th wards on, uh-oh, the Lower East Side. Exactly, exactly where Joseph G. Christopher attacked in 1980 and where the cross was burned and where Peyton Gendron attacked last month. Continuing. Lower East Side, one of the most impoverished parts of the city, still a hundred years later today, as elsewhere in the United States, local African-Americans confronted racist attitudes that severely limited socioeconomic mobility. In a study conducted in 1927, University of Buffalo sociologist Niles Carpenter discovered that many city employers considered blacks to be slow thinkers who were not able to assume any responsibility. Most of those interviewed agreed that blacks should always have a white man as a foreman. With such sentiments prevailing, it is not surprising that the large majority of black workers were confined to low-paid, unskilled, and semi-skilled jobs that their status improved only marginally during the 2020s, I mean 1920s. Commentary you would like to add, and again, the Topps supermarket, there were two different Topps in East Buffalo, the one that Christopher, uh, Joseph G. Christopher attacked, Glenn Dunn, 1980, that was on Genesee Street, Jefferson Avenue is where the one that Peyton Gendron attacked, but they're about three miles between the two. Uh, just mm-hmm. what do you make of the history of black people still to this day being stuck in this low deprived area of East Buffalo? Yeah, I just read an article a couple of weeks ago about, uh, about why that tops was targeted and, and everything. It'd been a real struggle to get that new tops built there because whoever's in charge of locations of grocery stores didn't want to do it. Uh, you had one of these food desert situations where there wasn't a decent uh, grocery store, but they finally, I think, with uh, some federal funding or state funding managed uh, uh, to get it there. But a key thing to know about Buffalo is in the 1920s, it was really growing. I think it was the 11th largest city in the United States, over 600,000 people. Everybody thought it'd be a million by 1950, but it it, uh, it didn't work out. And today it's a lot smaller. It's uh, down to less than 300,000 inside the city limits. There's a lot of people that live out in the suburbs, but inside the city it's actually declined. That's where that description of all those 
kind of seems like burned out houses and everything and block after block where nobody lives anymore uh, as a result of the kind of rust belt rust belt phenomenon that went on but there were 5000 african americans around 1920 according to the census but remember that's in a city with 600,000 so relatively small population what is that 2% or something today Buffalo's black population is almost 40% of the city. So there's been a big, big shift in African-American representation there. All the way up until World War II, we had a relatively small uh, black population. So now you have a much larger one, and uh, there is today simply de facto segregation in the city. Uh, article I read said very, very few white people even walk over to the east side. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's really like two cities now. They built up the harbor area and everything and tried to make improvements there, but on the east side, uh, it's, it's really like a different world. And um, so that might, might be a, a factor in this, uh, this psycho's uh, thinking about... Uh, the situation there, you know, he's into that uh, replacement theory and and other uh, sickening ideas. So that might have been a factor. I can't figure him out. Hmm. Uh, speaking of figuring out both Peyton Gendron and what it means to be white, I hope folks remember the paragraph that I just read from Hooded Nights on the Niagara uh, in talking about black people being confined to these lower paying jobs and University of Buffalo sociologist Niles Carpenter discovering that many city employers considered blacks to be slow thinkers who were not able to assume any responsibility. Now, I want you to hold that, get my gusty renegade triple play since I do my homework. So Anna Blotto, she was a guest on our program on Monday. We were talking about this same subject. She actually, uh, born and raised in Buffalo, New York, writes about racism, white supremacy, and the history uh, of that system in Buffalo specifically. So one report that she referenced, uh, Black in Buffalo, a late century progress report. Now, this was written in 1996. Uh, The author writes, education alone will not explain the economic disparity the 1990 since in this report was written in 1996 the 1990 census reported that 57% of whites and 52% of blacks had completed high school obtained an associate's degree or completed 1 to 2 1 to 3 years of college even more striking is the fact that more blacks 19% than whites 16% had completed one or more years of college without getting their diploma. This should make blacks more competitive in the labor market, but it does not. Only racism, white supremacy, can explain the economic disparity. In 1992, the Buffalo News conducted a poll on racial attitudes in Erie County. They found whites viewed blacks as less intelligent, less hardworking, and less trustworthy than whites. 
Similar results were found in a poll conducted by WKBW-TV. Now this is 1996, Black and Buffalo. Dr. Lay just mentioned Peyton Gendron not being able to figure him out. He was born in a sundown town, Conklin, New York. Say something about that later, but he is attributed to have written a manifesto. In that manifesto, he has a big chart from the bell curve. People should know that book. He wrote one paragraph, allegedly. It says, Europeans' populations are much more likely to have specific genes that are linked to the brain than Africans. These genes have a direct influence on expected behavior and brain development, which may have factors in the individual's expected fluid and crystallized intelligence. In conclusion, from all of this, blacks are predispositioned to have weaker brain ability due to genetics. This is important because it leads to the question if blacks should live in a Western world built by whites. The answer to this question is no. They simply are not built to live in the white world. This advanced human civilization that we have today can only be built by whites. Blacks simply hold us down. My question, Dr. Lay, is now what does that say about what it means to be white, white people collectively, that over a hundred years it's not just Peyton Gendron, apparently widespread belief amongst white people over many generations. Black people are retarded and white people need to be in control forever. What does that say about what it means to be white collectively and how they view black people? Well, uh, I mean, it's, it's obviously very, very damning. And in part that I think that's maybe most sinister there is that they would be saying that your white identity, your sense of yourself, has to embrace uh, that notion of special whiteness. It's not just that other races are inferior, but that yours is inherently superior, and your your very identity would be uh, would be built around that. Uh, particular concept yeah it's very toxic there's no doubt about it just being specific in terms of when we said earlier widespread this is collective and you said you didn't see any evidence of white people they're going to stop practicing racism white supremacy this is the type of thing that I point to in saying hey let's not isolate Peyton Gendron and make it seem like he's special if he did in fact write this if he felt this way these views are not an anomaly at all. This is a very widespread view that white people have. Maybe they don't go shoot up your grocery store, but that does help explain why you might have trouble getting a grocery store to begin with. Am I making logical sense, Dr. Lay? Uh, yes, and the good thing about that is it really brings itself full circle back to what my research about the Klan in the 20s said, 
is that it's real easy to say the Klan was this aberrant group. It, it didn't have anything to do with the real decent people in the community. But then you look at the membership list, and it's the heart of the mainstream. And also in the case of the Klan in the 20s, the most vociferous opponents to the Klan uh, are Roman Catholics, because the Klan is a, a Protestant organization. They felt Catholics weren't real Americans and so forth, and including the mayor who was Roman Catholic. They all play a, a very notable role in eventually uh, crushing the Klan in Buffalo. But do you think even those opponents of the Klan loved black people in the 1920s? Why do you think they're down there in those hellhole precincts that you described about on the Lower East Side? So sometimes you'd see these groups saying we all got to fight on the basis of, uh, you know, this sinister threat and so forth. But uh, white people who are anti-Klan often were very, very racist themselves. So there's no denying that. When I spoke with Dr. Lay uh, last Sunday, I think it was. And I was saying, yeah, we should talk about your book, blah, 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 and all of that. And he said, oh, yeah, I see, you know, the connection, even though the killer was from Conklin, New York, he wasn't exactly born and raised in Buffalo. But I do see, you know, the connection, how it's important to what happened and everything. And I said, that is, you know, a good point. He was born in Conklin. Like, I shouldn't just be all the focus on Buffalo. Like, so that's what's what's going on in Conklin, New York, because I didn't know anything about that area. I didn't really know a whole lot about Buffalo either. I'm on the other side of the continent. So the L.A. Times, they had a report. Did the Buffalo mass shooting suspects 90% white hometown fuel his hate? Sundown Towns, James Owen, he passed away last year. We did read that in the book club. So just one quick paragraph in their report. It reads, 90% of Conklin's just over 5,000 residents are white. That's down from 96.8% in 2010 largely because of an increase in its multiracial and Latino populations. That's not even a race. According to the most recent census, the number of black residents has fallen from 56 to 52 census data showed. We are minorities today. This is Debbie, one of the town's white residents speaking. We're down here And there up there in the world, Debbie said, referring to white and black people, respectively, blacks can get what they want and they can get a job because they use their race. I think that's probably driving how white people feel today. Debbie, who declined to give her last name, said she believes that sentiment was likely a key driver of Gendron's descent into extremism. That kid, he's feeling all that, she said. That's, in my opinion, why he probably felt that way is because of how it's going with black people lately. This is from Debbie. She didn't want to give her last name to the L.A. Times. Uh, What do you you make of Peyton Gendron apparently grew up, spent his 18 years on the planet in a sundown town that used to be 96.8% white. And now what is the, the main, you're, you're talking about 
because he came from predominantly white, but ended up with these terrible ideas? Is, is, is the community changing there, or is it still predominantly white? It's still predominantly white. Uh, I mean, they've got a few more, it said, so-called multiracial and Latino population, but it's still mm-hmm. 90% white. So, yes, yeah. the question that, uh, Well, that doesn't surprise me at all. Uh, just looking at the Klan of the 20s, I mean, in terms of being a percentage of the population, the Klan was strongest in the states that had very, very few immigrants, very few African-Americans. Mentioned Oregon. How many black people were in the premier Klan state of Oregon in the 1920s? You want to take a guess? You'd probably be lucky to have a dozen or so in the whole state. Indiana, the number one Klan state, very, very few uh, uh, black people there. And so uh, maybe there is a supporting culture there that kind of sees these these menaces that are not in their own community, but they're projected out in, in other areas. Evidently, the Buffalo shooter was obsessing about Buffalo and that neighborhood and and the customers and that and that tops. I'm not sure if they've got to the bottom of why he was focusing on that particular place, but he got you know his uh, bizarre political statement, all that uh, that filth and so forth. So that seems to be another factor. Hmm. Even though you uh, were not informed about Joseph G. Christopher, and as I said. We've not spoken with anyone in the now month since uh, the tragedy happened who was aware of Joseph Christopher. Uh, I've seen a lot of reports uh, that Mr. Gendron, he studied, he knew about uh, Brandon Tarrant, the uh, white terrorist in New Zealand uh, and Dylan Storm Roof and some of these other white killers and what have you. He had done study about Buffalo to know that this, you know, east side of Buffalo has a high concentration of black people. Uh, He's in New York State, even though, you know, Joseph G. Christopher, that happened decades before he was born. Do you think he had research like, oh, hey, this white killer went to East Buffalo Tops before and started killing black people. I should do the same thing. Do you think he did any of that sort of recon? I I don't know, but it's something that obviously needs to be investigated. I, the most shocking thing that you told me was that the media outlets, with the exception of one, hadn't looked at that. I mean, you'd think a simple internet search could do that like just the mass shootings or racial hate crimes in buffalo that would have popped up right away but nobody's looked at it evidently and like i said somebody needs to jump on that and get themselves a best-selling book i and perform agree. a social service as well i agree i've only seen the uh, buffalo news and they did a very short article with no detail there are many reasons why I think they have not gone into like an in-depth, hey, this happened before. Number one, they do not want non-white people to get an accurate understanding of all of this. Uh, I think two, there was a lot of black self-defense, even walking myself right to the questions where I wanted to go in the book. There was a lot of black self-defense. There is a very, at least myself, I hear lots of non-white people and white people say that black people are cowards and they just allow we've allowed uh, racists to abuse us 
for centuries and we don't fight back and we keep taking it. And that's why Peyton Gendron and Dylan Stormroof and all these other folks come in and just abuse black people whenever they want. And that's whoa, whoa, whoa. The historical record that is not true at all. There are many, 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 many times where black people have fought back. Joseph G. Christopher, there were lots of black people who fought back going right again. Dr. Lay's book, Hooded Nights on the Niagara. Uh, he writes, this is on page 40, bottom of page 40. The arrival of the Klan produced a vehemently negative reaction in certain quarters, convinced that the revived KKK was an organized organization of terrorism and hate, a band of cowardly murderers that intended to spread Southern style racism and vigilantism northward. The Buffalo Americans served notice that the, the community's African-American population would oppose the order with all possible means, advising the paper's readers to take time to teach your offspring the manly art of self-defense. One American editorialist asserted that the Negro has not to fear of this gang of cowards. Give me the four colored regiments with full permission to shoot, not in the air, but direct at them. And in 30 days, I will sell their long white robes to any junk dealer you designate. Make a torch of the castle of the high muckamucks and a jackrabbit of the supreme lizard. I'll give them one more uh, alleged black cowardice because uh, I hear that all the time. Uh, you write this is a couple pages down. Uh, in November, the Reverend E.G. Nichols characterized the KKK as a cowardly, underhanded organization, warning that we do not want any K uh, Ku Klux Klan in Buffalo and will resist the invasion of these lawless individuals who preserve a mask of what they term righteousness while commuting, committing lawless acts. The editor of the Buffalo American similarly noted that the Klan would be well advised to steer clear of local blacks. Our people are aroused and it is known that we mean business. We feel that we are prepared to check the spread of this infamous organization in our fair city of Buffalo. With the Northern Negro, it will be an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth with this clan. The Buffalo chapter of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People also denounced the KKK and called on Governor Miller to take action against the order. Thousands of our people in Buffalo want to see the American Constitution kept inviolate. We will resist with every ounce of our power the invasion of our rights by such a body. I will stop there. Now, you already mentioned there weren't even like tons of black people in Buffalo at this time. I think this is super important. If you could comment to that. And as a professional historian, is that a pattern that you've seen where deliberately white historians do not focus on or talk about black counter violence efforts to deal with racism, white supremacy, or deliberately make sure that that sort of content is not discussed and known about? Well, sometimes the, uh... You need to make an extra effort in terms of looking for sources. And fortunately, when I wrote the book, there were still uh, 
some oral sources available about the black community uh, response, and there were copies of black newspapers that I've uh, I've quoted from there. You have to remember that this second Klan was based on uh, the birth of a nation, and so while whites might have loved that movie, African Americans hated it, obviously. And so they figured this new organization may be similar to the original Klan. And so you do have that vociferous uh, uh, response there. You also had uh, you had 5,000 African Americans there, but a, a pretty big chunk of them were actually college-educated and members of the NAACP. Uh, so they weren't in the you know the kind of hopeless situation that many blacks in in the rural areas of the South had been in that were very vulnerable. And so they were definitely going to uh, uh, to fight back. I, I did a, a talk at Canisius College years ago in in Buffalo about the black response to the Klan in the 1920s, and there were a number of uh, black scholars there and community. Uh, historians and so forth uh, they came and you know I'm not, I'm not going to be crowing about this the way that some people would but afterwards a group came up to me and my main point is that the Klan isn't just these people down at the bottom that you know most white people try to say they're the real racists and so forth my point was that the racism and bigotry suffused society, white society in Buffalo at that time. And these folks came up to me, they shook my hand, and they said, finally, a white historian got it right. So that was uh, that was just very nice little moment for me. I mean, I was just doing my job, but uh, that was the response. Context of white supremacy. We did get crows again, not crowing about this, but I, that just makes the point, uh, in my view, in terms of the question that I asked, in terms of those uh, black uh, scholars coming up and and saying, you know, they appreciated you talking about this information because that's that's been my experience consistently, where this sort of information is delayed. In fact, I submit that's one of the reasons why there has not been discussion about Joseph G. Christopher and the killings of these black males because there was substantial same thing that you wrote in your book we are not just going to have black males being shot and killed and their hearts cut out of their chest we are going to fight back and this included uh, black people throwing rocks at white people that they thought looked like the subject suspect uh, they saw them in black areas where black people lived at and what are you doing around here you look like you could be up to no good and even shooting uh, at some white people like you know it got really lots of reasons why this event has not been talked about but I think that is a big one uh, to your very point I thought this was one of the key points uh, in the text Hooded Nights on the Niagara uh, you just said and I hear that all the time as well in addition to black people are chumps and cowards who've not fought back against racism, that it's just ignorant white people. We just, not Woodrow Wilson, who loved Birth of a Nation and was president and president of the United States, president of <laughs> Ivy League, Princeton University, not, oh yeah, people like him, 
were in the Klan and loved all of this white supremacy racism and thought black people were no count and ignorant, just like Peyton Gendron, uh, you and the book have a breakdown. Let's look at the types of jobs that these folks had who were joining the Klan at this period, early 1920s. Uh, you write, as can be seen, judged by their occupations, the city's Klan members, Knights, were a remarkably high status group with significantly higher percentages of members in the high and middle non-manual categories and lower percentages in the semi-skilled service and unskilled classifications than the other two groups of working males. Uh, and you go on to give some of the reasons. We already talked about some of that, who would have money to be able to afford the dues at the time. Incidentally, I did the went to one of the sites that does the inflation calculator. So $10 in 1925 today would be $167.03. So people can think right. about that. Now, how many places would you pay to join? 167 This is monthly. How many? I mean, woof. I think for a lot of people, even a gym membership, like 167 a month? Wow. That alone for a lot of folks, my, I totally agree that niggers are dumb and ignorant and I don't want them living around me or with my daughter, but whoa, that is too much. You also talked about it in the book that at the time as well, this is kind of a paralegal illegal organization. You could be caught. You talked about having the, the roster of names published. So you might have to be in a more secure financial position where, hey, I'm not going to be ratted out and lose my job and that sort of thing. So might have to be a bit more of a secure white person to be able to join this group and fear that this is not going to cause that. Is, that is a really good point because New York State, as the Klan grew, uh, felt the Klan could turn into a political force that would challenge the power elite there. So they passed something called a Walker Law in 1923 that says any secret organization, and the Klan was a secret organization, had to provide a list of all their members. Klan refused to do that. So it was an illegal organization. So not only are you paying those high dues, but you're running the risk of uh, maybe ultimately going to jail. As it turned out, almost nobody went. But uh, So these would have to be people that were motivated to a large extent. Of course, they're motivated by terrible things, but it, it just shows the intensity of their uh, racism and bigotry that they would run that type of risk and pay that amount of money. And also, it, like you said, it also shows class status which is confirmed by the, by the data. All the data show that uh, uh, these are middle-class people. You don't get people at the very, very top because they got it good anyway. And the people down at the bottom in Buffalo, for the most part, they are uh, often of immigrant stock. You had to be a native-born white Protestant to join the Klan. So the people down at the bottom are disqualified there plus also disqualified by the the cost of joining uh, the membership there. So it's, it's a middle-class organization. And there's been a number of studies that have now been done over the last 20, 25 years across the United States, and they're finding it everywhere, that it, uh, it was a middle-class organization, uh, like lawyers, doctors, insurance uh, uh, agents, the people that worked as foremen in factories, 
supervisors, just uh, your heart of, of white America at that time. And uh, so what does that say about the country? You know, that you have good, decent, ordinary Americans belonging to this racist, bigoted society. Uh, it's a pretty dark lesson, but, you know, we have to let the chips fall where they do. Uh, dark lesson, I would say white lesson, meaning this is what it means to be white and why this persists today why there is no grocery store in East Buffalo why Peyton Gendron knew oh yeah the Negras are in East Buffalo why Joseph G. Christopher same thing uh, before I see some of the folks who dialed in they have questions I'll nab your hands I just talk about this all the time on the program uh, and the role of white women in the system of white supremacy racism so many times this gets talked about talked about world war ii we read the man in the high castle uh, and i've said consistently you wouldn't have a system of white supremacy without the woman the man even the children uh you write this is on page 75 bottom of 75 uh, in April of 1924 Mrs. Alma Smith no relation to the Reverend Smith a teacher at school number 16 told her 8th grade class that our mayor uh, Mayor Schwab ought to be the next one tarred and feathered Woof, the metaphor there and I, mean, I think she meant it literally but still and it would be a good thing for Buffalo if the KKK did something the Buffalo Council of Churches continued to extend full support to the Reverend Smith, who consistently, if unequivocally, denied Klan affiliation and even District Attorney Moore, who despised the KKK, felt obliged to cooperate with Smith and his undercover operatives. Uh, she eventually did get in trouble uh, for saying these, I guess, things in front of the class or what have you. He, Mayor Schwab was able to get her removed from her post. What was the role uh, of white women I think he even talked about the the clan camellia which was the women's auxiliary of this organization what was the role of white women in the clan and white supremacy at this time oh it's a very strong important one particularly uh, politically because uh, you had the recent passage of the 19th amendment and so one of the big arguments that was made uh, in the south was we should let women vote because it's going to be mostly white women and that'll increase the white vote there and um, wherever you see female voter registration increasing you often see it uh, supporting uh, candidates that even if they're not Klan affiliated often are holding somewhat similar uh, views the Klan was very big on uh, the enforcement of prohibition that was one reason why they didn't like Mayor Schwab, and uh, it was women were more likely to be pro-prohibition, pro-efforts uh, to get rid of vice and so forth. So they're definitely political uh, allies there. I did another book. I, I'm from El Paso, Texas, and uh, about the Klan that was done there. And when they brought the white uh, female vote in, it just uh, really uh, assisted the pro-Klan elements uh, there and uh, I'm sure there was a similar phenomenon in in Buffalo, but the Klan itself is a male organization, but it does have these auxiliaries like the Camellia and uh, 
another one called the Women of the Ku Klux Klan. And they were ardent supporters. Uh, the Klan would hold uh, all sorts of fairs and uh, picnics and things like that. It's it's women preparing all that and attending that and and supporting that. So this kind of uh, illusory sentiment that somehow women are more noble or more liberal or you know less inclined to be uh, vicious on racial issues. That's not true at all. It's the same as white men, and uh, the Klan experience shows that context of white supremacy Dr. Sean Lay uh, let's see folks who dialed in star 61 the number 720-716-7300 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you would like to participate if you have a question for Dr. Lay let's see our caller I guess you're on the Skype line Kwaku if you're on the Skype line if you had a question for Dr. Lay you should be with us uh, greetings can I be heard your volume is a little low if you could uh, speak up or maybe get closer to your volume or maybe increase the volume uh, combination Uh, is that better? Yes, much better. Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, greetings, Gus, and greetings, uh, Doctor Lay. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Uh, my my first question for the for the guest is: uh, Does a system of justice exist? Uh, justice being balance between all people uh, and guaranteeing that those who need help receive con- those who need help receive the constructive help that they need. Hello. Let's see, Doctor Lay, did you hear his question? Uh, something about whether people receive help, or <laughs> I, I can only vaguely hear that. Let's see. Can, uh, uh, I, can I can. Yeah, let's mm-hmm. let's repeat it and see if he can hear it. Okay. Uh, my question was: Does a system of justice exist? Justice meaning guaranteeing that. Nobody's being mistreated, and those who need con- constructive help receive constructive help. Uh, does that system exist? Does it exist? Uh, no, it's, it's certainly an ideal, but I mean, justice, uh, whether it's through the courts or in another fashion, I think is uh, is obviously. Uh, uh, a big problem and a big challenge for us. So our, our justice system is definitely uh, uh, needs a lot of work, to say the least. Okay, thank you. Um, my next question, or I guess it's kind of like a statement than a question, but you know, from my observation, uh, people classified as white usually have two options under a system of racism, white supremacy. Uh, the options being either they can support the system of racism, white supremacy through, uh, through deceit and the threat of violence, or they can produce justice, which is revealed truth. Uh, and in your opinion, what, what do you believe uh, people classes, classified as white most often choose? Or you're asking what white people ought to do to improve uh, the situation? Uh, no. Do you need me to restate the question? Please. 
Okay, so in my observation, uh, white pe- people classified as white have two options under the system of racism, white supremacy. They can either support the system of racism, white supremacy through deceit and uh, the threat of violence, or they can produce justice by revealing truth. In your opinion, what option do white people most often choose? Well, that's that's an interesting question. I, I think maybe some people support white supremacy, but in other ways, maybe they're making a, an effort towards justice. I, and I'm not sure it's just a Manichaean uh, type of thing. Uh, I don't know. I, but I do think whatever course you're going to take to improve justice, it uh, it often involves a lot of uh, kind of subtle and smaller types of choices you make in your life every day as as you interact with people. But I, I really wouldn't have a response to that. If I did, I should probably be president, but uh, I don't, I'm not sure I'm qualified. Uh, okay. Um, I got I got two more questions, and then I'll go ahead and uh, meet my line. Uh, so my my next question is: Do you, do you, do people classified as white prefer to practice racism in a refined manner or in a more overt, overt manner? Well, I I think for most people it's more covert. Uh, there's certainly been a kind of a general rule here that uh, overt racism is looked down on. And there's a lot of uh, social sanctions for that, even from uh, other white people who might be racist themselves. So I, I, I think it's it's a lot more covert and uh, uh, subtle than it used to be. Interesting. Uh, and then my last question was, uh, you, you mentioned a, a list of Klan members uh, mm-hmm. That you received in, that you received from Buffalo. Are you willing to share that list? Sure, it's uh, it's in the Buffalo Historical Society, uh, downtown Buffalo, and they not only have the Klan membership list there, but they have a bunch of other uh, documents. I, I couldn't believe it when I found it that it hadn't been fully exploited. But it wasn't just a list of names, but it was names with addresses, employer, the job that they each held. Uh, So it was just a treasure trove of uh, material. It would have taken years and years to get that stuff out of the census and maybe not be accurate, but it's all right there. It's one of the most remarkable uh, sets of information about the Klan's membership uh, that's ever been discovered, and I was just really lucky to find it. And by the way, not only do they have the membership list for the Klan in Buffalo, but they have it for dozens of other surrounding communities in western New York. Uh, and that has not been exploited. So someday somebody will go in there and look at those names and, and hopefully write uh, another book that will look at the Klan in the entire part of western New York. I see. Um I'm sorry, I know, Gus, I said I have one more question. I just had a follow-up for that one. Um, and then if, if you can mute my line after that, I'd appreciate it. 
Um, so once once that list became known, was what was like what was done about it? Well, let me tell you how they got the list. The Klan maintained membership uh, information. They had it on a series of cards at their secret headquarters in downtown Buffalo. Now, as I've mentioned, the Klan was at war with the mayor at that time, Mayor Schwab. Mayor Schwab was kind of a guy that was in favor of street justice and didn't always look at the niceties of the law. And he said, you know, damn it, I'm going to get these guys before they get me. And so he had somebody break into Klan headquarters, and they took all the membership lists. And then they put it on display down at the uh, police station in Buffalo for everybody to come in, make a copy of it if they wanted to. And meanwhile, somebody took all those names and put them in a pamphlet that was published and came out in 1924. So you'll also find in the Buffalo Files uh, a published pamphlet that lists everybody and their employer and, and stuff like that. And so the response was, uh, once people were exposed, uh, there's actually some rioting that goes on in Buffalo. They go to the homes of these Klansmen and paint giant KKKs on their their house and and things like that. They boycott their businesses, and so there's a quite vociferous response uh, uh, that takes place there. They were lucky that there wasn't more generalized violence there, but it was a an ugly, nasty episode. And so that was the response to their exposure. And once they were exposed, the Klan's power disappeared overnight. A lot of their power is that they're secret. You don't know who's a Klansman. You don't know if somebody's listening to you or watching you or watching your kids. And once that was gone, uh, by their exposure, the, the organization folded up in about a year and a half after that. Much obliged for your question, sir. Let's see. I oh, already mentioned Louisiana. Second time around, Irie in Louisiana. Did you have a question for Dr. Sean Lay, who was born in Louisiana? Hello. Can yes. you hear me? Yes, ma'am. Oh, okay. Great. Good evening. Uh, so it's a simple question because um, I'm late to the broadcast, but um, thanks for joining. And... Um, so, so let me see. Okay, so do you agree uh, to the guests that we're in a system of injustice, which basically there there isn't a balance between people and people are being mistreated? Do you agree with that? Uh-huh. Okay. So the question that I want to ask you is what thing, object, of or just what what of uh, substantial material comfort or uh gain are you willing to give up to part with for the rest of your life to balance out the system that we're in in order to produce justice which is a system that is that everyone is in balance with each other and no one is mistreated, and everyone that needs help gets the most constructive help. What are you willing to give up for the rest of your life as a white person to do that? 
Well, in my case, it's kind of, if you're talking about economic sacrifice, that's an intriguing question because uh, I'm married to a woman of color, and I'm not sure if she should have to bear the economic burden, although she might be inclined to want to do that. Uh, I uh, I do know as an educator, I've tried, you know, with everybody of every background to be as uh, helpful and serve as a reference and kind of go the extra mile to help people uh, in terms of their uh, future goals and so forth. But as far as giving up something specific, I I think maybe the best thing you can just do is try to try to keep an open open mind. Uh, I realize that's really vague, but uh, but it, that is a penetrating question that you ask. Okay. Um, well, you you'll be not surprised to know that I'm also uh, in a relationship, a partnership with uh, a non-white person. And we both have had to give up substantial things of gain and comfort uh, throughout our lives, including um, during our union together. So unfortunately for me, I would say that you being married to a non-white female doesn't, I feel like um, that wouldn't disqualify you from giving up something. Um, And I don't think you answered the question, but I do want to... uh, allow other people to speak and but th- but thank you very much for answering sure, the best you could. Much obliged. Irie in Louisiana. Let's see, uh retired firefighter in Florida. Did you have a question for our guest, Doctor Sean Lay? Greetings everyone. Greetings to the guests. Uh I, I, as far as for what I've heard so far, uh, sir, that you are a uh, expert historian, an awarded historian, uh, emeritus, I believe I heard this, the term, uh, with those credentials. And uh, you sound like that you have a lot of knowledge on the history of racism, white supremacy, such as a physician uh, would have, would be as expert on medicine, a doctor would be expert on medicine and have solutions to medical problems. Do you have any solutions or suggestions to us as non-white people, victims of racism, white supremacy, on to solving the problem of racism, white supremacy? I I don't know if any white person is really in a position to uh, to give advice there. They might, but it might be counterproductive, perhaps, owing to ignorance and so forth. <laughs> Here, a lot of well-intentioned or supposedly well-intentioned white people making suggestions about this or that. Uh, one you often hear is, you know, get educated and and stuff like that. But I they were, had that interesting statistic earlier in the show about uh, in Buffalo, you actually have uh, young blacks with more education than many of the young whites. And it had excuse, excuse me, sir. I don't, I don't know if it's my phone or your phone, but 
the volume is very low. Okay. Can you hear better now? A little bit. Okay. Yeah, I've got, uh, we have a lot of lightning storms here. My good phone got blown out, so I'm using like a little princess phone here. You, you said something about you as a white person don't feel comfortable with giving advice to a victim? No, not that it wouldn't be a matter of comfort, but it might be something that might be intended to, to do good that it necessarily wouldn't, owing to... Uh, uh, well, shouldn't, shouldn't, shouldn't you, uh, quote-unquote, take that, take that chance to, to offer well, some uh, suggestions, well, you, being that you are such an expert on the subject? I mean, as, as I've mentioned before, as a doctor who's an expert on medicine, especially some different types, would give a, a, a victim of uh, heart trouble uh, some uh, suggestions on how to have a healthy heart or a healthy brain, a lung, uh, just general health in itself. It's a it's an uncomfortable atmosphere in doing that, but the person still does it. And racism, white supremacy, is it a problem? Is do you agree with that? Yes, it is. I, I've already stated. Okay, and and um, you have let me, let testified me, on this program yeah, that me, uh, you know a lot about this subject. Well, I'm not omnipotent in my knowledge about it, but here, let me take a stab at it. Uh, I, I think it's important for all people as much as possible to uh, study the past. You know, I'm a historian. Uh, I, I think it's very important to go back and look at causes of things, origins of things, accurate history, and so forth. And I think if you're really going to have progress, what you need to do, and this is what I've tried to dedicate my work to, is you have an accurate awareness of the past, that that may possibly give you opportunities uh, to improve things down the road. So I've found history to be therapeutic, and I think it would be kind of therapeutic to everybody to read a lot, think a lot, uh, just the way you're pushing me right now to, uh, to think about these things. And if we just react emotionally and, and so forth, I think that's the road to folly. So uh, uh, my, my suggestion would be to, uh, you know, study, read, think, talk to people that you respect. Sometimes they'll say things you don't agree with. You have to be prepared for that. And that uh, I realize it won't be a cure-all. It won't necessarily make you feel happy about everything, but I think the, the truth will ultimately set you free as much as you can find the truth in history. I have, and my last question is, where in the history of global racism, white supremacy uh, has white people having sex with non-white people uh, help solve this problem? That's 
an interesting question. Uh, hmm. I, uh, I, right off the top of my head, I can't see how it has. But uh, mm-hmm. on the other hand, maintaining a purely strict racial caste system without intermingling, I'm not sure that's going to solve anything. But I think usually it's uh, because it's been so unequal traditionally that it's been a form of persecution and uh, hasn't. uh, Therefore, do you think it's contributed to the global system of racism, white supremacy? I think so. Maybe sex between white people and non-white people. Has it contributed to keeping the system of racist white supremacy thriving? And can you point some some uh, examples? Well, I think in traditional slavery in the United States, it was a component of it. It was uh, uh, an exercise in power. Uh, and so it, uh, I mean, it, it was a form of violence that was used to, to emphasize the dominance of... Uh, of white males. So I think it overall, as long as it wasn't, uh, you know, mutually reassuring that, uh, yeah, it was a, a negative thing. Hang tight. Uh, Do you think white uh, women has contributed towards that problem? Hang also? Tight, retired firefighter in Florida. We have other folks who uh, dialed in. Uh, let's see. All right. The caller one, one, five, nine. One one five nine. Did you have a question for Doctor Lay? You should be with us. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yeah. Greetings, Gus. Greetings, Doctor Lay. Um, my question for the guest is: um, Is it? Do you think it's logical? And would it be constructive if all non-white people refuse sexual? interaction with white people until this race problem is solved. Did you think that would motivate white people to um, help us to solve this problem immediately? Are you talking about some sort of uh, self-driven segregation? Would this just be in economic relations or social relations? No, I'm talking about non-white people collectively refusing all sexual engagement with um, white people until this race problem has been solved. Do you think if non-white people collectively made that decision, white people would be more motivated to help us solve this race problem? Yeah, and, and you said sexual relations or mm-hmm. Yeah, all, all, uh-huh. all sexual relations. Well... Uh, I, I'm very uncertain about what the result of that would be. I, I, I don't think it. You think it could happen, actually, or you, you think people would be able to maintain that type of uh, movement? Yeah, if if non-white people collectively wanted to solve the race problem, and we are attempting to try everything, that's something we could try, and I think it would be constructive. Do you think it would be constructive? No, I, I, I really don't think it, uh, it would work out. I'm not sure it's a, uh, 
it'll be a big uh, motivator in most cases. I, I think it, you know, it's an interesting thing to think about, but uh, actually going into effect and achieving anything, I kind of skeptical about that. How do you think white people would respond to such a thing? It'd probably vary from individual to individual. Thank you, Doctor Lee. Thank you, sure guys. Indeed, indeed. Uh, Rob, in second time today, California. Rob in San Diego. Did you have a question for Doctor Lay? Uh, yes. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, greeting, uh, Gus. Uh, thanks for the uh, guest coming on the program. Uh, I wanted to uh, reiterate what the uh, retired firefighter. Uh, said about the audio quality of the guest. Um, I've had a hard time um, hearing the guest until I got in a completely quiet environment, and his audio sounds like a whisper compared to everyone else's audio. And uh, with that being said, my first question for the guest is, uh, how did you end up with a non-white female as your mate? <laughs> Well, uh, that's kind of a personal question, isn't it? But uh, excuse now me. I, uh, uh, let me. Can I? Excuse me. Uh, can I ask uh, one more question surrounding this question? Um, may I ask that you not laugh? Um, I think that the subject that we are talking about is very serious. And if you choose to not answer a question, just state that. And that's my question for you. I I think I'll just uh, keep my answer to myself. Okay. Second, uh, third question. Um, when you engage in uh, sexual activity with this non-white female, uh, do you ever feel self-conscious about the color of your body compared to the non-white female that you're engaged in sexual activity with? Uh, I think I'll throw that back to the moderator. What, what's going on here? Gus, I'll mute my line. Thank you for taking my call. Oh, can, did you not want to answer that question? Well, that's ridiculous. Okay. Much obliged. Uh, all questions are valid. That's generally the way that I proceed. Uh, the caller. Uh, no, that's that's not valid. What's not valid? What's not valid about the question he asked? When you're talking about relations like that, and what do you think at the time? You know. What's invalid about that? Yeah, it's nobody's business. That's what. It's nobody's. Excuse just me. so I can understand, what's no what's no one's business? Well, the person that asked the question, among other things. No, I mean, what is what's not his business or our business or you know whoever is proposing? What specifically is not our business or his business? My private rea reactions to you know physical contact with somebody. My God. Hmm. Okay. Okay. 
Um, we do have um, another. Excuse me one second. Can I have one more question? Beth? I'm sorry, please. That interrupting, like, man, oh, man, <laughs> get your question in. Because everybody, you see that pattern? Please. I had this written down. I was going to say it now, but just because it's happened three times now. If you say last question, make that the last question. If you know you have five other questions, just roll with your questions. And do not that interrupting after we've moved on, like, never. I get tired of having to say that, like every other program. Like, do not interrupt me i can fix all that we can just mute everybody's line and rock and roll what is your question robin san diego uh i just wanted to ask the guest uh is he familiar with the work of uh dr francis first wilson and i only asked that question uh because of his response and i'll mute my line and sorry for interrupting you sir did you hear his question dr lay no, I didn't. He said, are you what familiar you with the work of Dr. Francis Cress Welsing? No. Much obliged. <sighs> Forget where I was going now. I have to go back. It totally disrupts. the. Tr- I don't interrupt you all when you're answering your question. Like, my goodness. And I have to keep saying that for 13 years. That's another reason. <laughs> Worthless Negro from Virginia. Man. What I was saying before I was so rudely interrupted, we've heard that response from white guests before when someone asks them about being in a so-called interracial relationship, in some sort of sexual arrangement with a non-white person, you volunteered that you are in a sexual arrangement married to a non-white person. You volunteered that information earlier today with us verbally. Is that correct, Dr. Lay? Yes. Okay. You also put that in your book very early. It's on page eight. You wrote, frankly, this has proven very difficult for this author a devout Roman Catholic who is married to a woman of color and committed to a variety of progressive causes. I'll stop there. You wrote this. In my view, you already said there's a long history of white people practicing racism. It's a form of violence and power these sexual arrangements so South Carolina in the name of J. Strom Thurmond in my view it is very valid to ask any sort of question about this especially if it's two different ways you volunteered this information publicly are we being or am I being logical Dr. Lay you can ask questions but if I feel that it's something that's a private matter, which that question was, you know, something that was intruding on my private, intimate sentiments, I don't feel obligated to answer that. I'm, I mean, I'm just trying to help out your show here, but it doesn't, it doesn't mean that I have to uh, answer a question like that. That's my choice. Oh, for sure. For sure. You don't have to answer a question, but I'm just I'm stating since the fact that it is in the book and 
it's in the introduction for listeners this is on page eight I have concluded like hey if this is going to be brought up it is always valid and logical all the way back to what we said at the very beginning about being suspicious of anyone classified as white area eight what happens with regards to sexual activity that is super important and just saying that this is private that doesn't cut it in a system of white supremacy whereas dr lay said there is a long history of white men women jay strom thurman south carolina using sex with non-white people to practice racism the caller who dialed in uh, last four digits uh, two two six two 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 six two did you have a question for dr. Sean Lay have you heard yes sir uh, thank you sir for taking my call and uh, greetings to everyone on the line views uh, to the callers and um, <clears throat> Uh, greetings to Dr. Lay. Um, I appreciate you taking a little of your time out to come on this program and speak to us. Um, my first question, sir, is um, upon your research into the Ku Klux Klan, um, when you read about some of the acts that they performed on non-white black people, how did you feel uh, about those acts? Well... I mean, it was horrific, particularly when you look at uh, the original Klan. It was a big government investigation that was done uh, about the first Klan. I mean, it's just a litany of horrors, and it uh, it's very, very disgusting. Mm, okay. Um, do you think that those atrocities, those crimes... Uh, how do you think they should have been punished if they were to get be uh, um, prosecuted? Oh, in, in some cases, limited cases, they were uh, punished. Uh, Klansmen were put on trial, and some of them were uh, imprisoned. Uh, so uh, maybe it wasn't appropriate or as extensive a punishment as it should have been, but... Uh, there, there at least was some accountability that was there. But I will say that in the great majority of cases, particularly with the original Klan, and also with the early atrocities of the second Klan, there wasn't uh, adequate punishment. But that's all reflective of uh, a very racist judicial system. You, um, thank you for your answer. Um, you just said every racist judicial system. What do you mean by that exactly? Are you saying that there are different um, types of racism? That, excuse me, what, what did you say before, different types of racism? That there's right. In, I'm sorry, sir, go ahead. No, go ahead. Yes, um, you just said about in the different types of judicial racial judicial systems. Is that correct? Uh-huh. Okay. So are there are you saying that there's different types of racism? Well, what do you I mean racism expresses itself in a variety of ways and uh if that's what you're meaning about different types of racism. 
yeah, there's a variety, a great panoply of uh, racist attitudes and actions and so forth. It's not all just one monolithic uh, type of uh, entity. Hmm. Um, thank you for that response. Um, uh, I joined the call very late. Um, did you agree with Gus's definition, or were you asked about uh, the definition of racism, white supremacy, sir? Uh, well, I think we discussed it early on. Uh, white supremacy is an outcome of racism, where one race sets itself up to dominate. It's got a racism in motion, basically. Um, okay. Okay. Um, that'll end my call for now. I mean, that'll end my call. No more questions. Thank you so much for answering my questions, Dr. Oops. Okay. Sorry about that. Clipped him off at the end. <sighs> that is the result. Make sure we don't have any of that interrupting. Racism in motion? See, now that's why on the compensatory call-in, Gus doesn't say that he doesn't like metaphors I say those metaphors are not precise they frequently allow that's right there when we talk about being more covert and refined that right there racism in motion in these types of ways of pussyfooting about what white supremacy racism is and how it works I normally don't even do but I mean hey I'm all for definition of white supremacy racism is very important because I didn't say racism in motion I was very specific for a reason and we talked about it throughout the program I said individuals classified as white are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white just for the benefit of those who tuned in late you said Dr. Lay you thought such a system exists does not exist this is another one that if you don't agree you can just say that I said it exists okay much obliged for our listener who just uh, dialed in I think we nabbed all of our callers I didn't see any stragglers uh, with hands Um, that passage that she wrote at the very beginning of the book why did you feel the need to let readers know so early on that you are as you say married to a woman of color well whenever you deal with a controversial topic like this and I was aware of how the historiography had uh, been tainted by uh, uh, particularly racial biases and so forth I wanted uh, just to be clear uh, who I was, but that didn't mean that somebody can come in, you know, ask intimate questions. I, I know you, you don't want something like that to embarrass your guests. Hmm. Um, uh, did you, were you embarrassed by that question? Is that what it was? <laughs> well, I'm not exactly blushing or anything, but, uh, uh, you know, that's, that's a private matter. Again, that that word private, I 
think Foucault wrote about that <laughs> when people invoke that word private uh, for in this is page eight like you don't even get to all the details and the nitty-gritty of the book where not is your white like specifically is she classified as black or is she something else non-white uh she's asian asian okay was she born in the states or someplace yeah. else someplace else someplace else okay Fascinating. How long you married? Are you have been married since the time? this book was published in 1995? So how long have you all been married? Uh, going on 40 years now. Wow. Wow. Okay. Okay. You you said the full sentences. Uh, this has proven very difficult for this author, a devout Roman Catholic who is married to a woman of color and committed to a variety of progressive causes. Uh, what what do you mean when you say progressive causes? <laughs> well, I'm thinking back to 1995. I'm wondering what a progressive cause would be back then. But uh, I definitely was uh, uh, in in favor of trying to treat people. I realize this may be hard to wrap your head about around, but uh, just treating everybody. Uh, as fairly and uh, justly as possible. And I've always tried to do that. Probably imperfect. You may say that some people can't do that, but um, yeah, at least you got to make the effort. Fair. We have talked about that word before. You said even fair before just. Hmm. Uh, is being in involved in some or being married to uh, and or engaged in sexual activity with a non-white female is that a progressive cause or pro progressive activity <laughs> uh, no it's not okay if someone evidence because you're a, a professional historian if someone said Dr. Lay let's have evidence that you're even though 40 years even still because I mean Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings they tell us hmm uh, give us evidence that your arrangement is not a part of that same pattern of white men sexually exploiting non-white females. Well, I mean, how do you prove a negative? That, that's impossible. Once again, all I can do is assure you that it's not. Hmm. You don't think racism, white supremacy has been in any way uh, intruded in your arrangement? You don't think you have practiced racism, white supremacy at any time in this arrangement? No. Hmm. Has any, a non-white person ever accused you of practicing racism or suspected you of practicing racism? Mm. Not that I've heard of. I mean, I've dealt with thousands and thousands of students and I never, uh, and, you know, we get evaluations where they can write whatever they want to. That's never come up, which has always, you know, been reassuring to me. And I teach uh, courses on race relations and stuff like that, and the response has usually been uh, reassuring. Mm, race relations. That's another one on my list of terms that obfuscate uh, racism, white supremacy, Jim Crow, race relations that's in the text as well Terror Peyton Gendron this is not Jim Crow 
This is not race relations, white supremacy, racism. Uh, I read really quick. I read a report, the same article that was talking about uh, you being born in Louisiana. It also said that your biggest fear, the steady erosion of individual rights and liberties. Now, this is from 2018, the end of what erosions uh, what erosion of individual rights and liberties are you concerned about as a white man well I I think it would be the same for anybody regardless of their their background I think we're all more and more suspect to uh, you know intrusions into uh, our private communications and and things like that like you personally feel like your your private communications are susceptible I think everybody's are and I think it's something that we all need to be aware of and uh, I I think people need to be very vigilant in protecting their liberties Hmm. okay okay see before uh, we let you enjoy the rest of your Sunday evening uh, retired firefighter in Florida was there one one Last question that you were going to get in. Or maybe. Um, not. Oh, okay. I, 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 well, I, I, I was. I uh, didn't punch the right uh, key. Uh, yeah. Um, what is your. Who, who uh, are. Your work on racism. Uh, who is it? Who is it intended for? White people or non-white people? Uh, it's intended for anybody that's interested in the topic of the Klan in the 1920s. I think everybody could uh, profit from it. I mean, when you write a book, it's not the end-all, final word on something like Moses bringing down the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai. It's you go out there, you dig around, find things that people didn't know about, and they can take it. It's grist for the mill, and they can use it as they uh, uh, continue to learn and, and to add uh, more information to, uh, you know, their, their fund about a particular topic. Hmm. Much obliged, retired firefighter. Sounded like you had a different question before. Uh, we've been chatting it up about hooded Knights on the Niagara, the Ku Klux Klan in Buffalo, New York. Uh, oh, I, for, I thought one of the listeners was going to ask, and I was stunned nobody did. Doing all the interrupting, Doctor Lay, who do you think is more informed about what white supremacy racism is, how it works, the day-to-day operations, and why all of this? How the details of how all of this happens? Worldwide, who do you think is more informed about that process, that information? Non-white people or white people? Non-whites. Why so? Well, I think uh, to know something, you've you've got to experience it, and you're looking in the case of white people. There's just a lot of denial about stuff, and I think you can understand that. And uh, I mean, it's always it's always hard to look at. Uh, uh, bad things you've done and, uh, you know, to take them into account and so forth. Uh, you get a lot of white people that will pretend, you know, that they care. But I don't think unless you've really 
experience something that uh, you can fully understand it. That's what I sense. Interesting. Interesting. Um, expert historian, you researched this. You informed about this, yes? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Even though you haven't experienced it, yes? I was looking at uh, a notorious organization. But, uh, you know, the good thing about history, anybody can go out there, get the sources, and if they don't think the story has been told properly, they can go back and uh, and, and write what they feel is the, uh, you know, the best story, uh, the accurate story. And I'm sure there's a lot of works of scholarship where, if other groups had uh, had done it, people with other experiences, that uh, it would have been beneficial. All of that is true, but since this is our last question before you depart, this is definitely one we would like answered. So you are a white man, expert historian. You are informed about racism, but you haven't experienced it. Is that true? Well, have I experienced racial prejudice? Is that different from racism? Probably. I mean, racism is more of an institutional thing. I mean, I grew up in El Paso. You know, if if I tell you something, it may seem defensive, but I was the only uh, white kid in my in my high school. And uh, were there people that uh, didn't care for white people that maybe took it out of me to a certain extent? Maybe. Uh, but whether that's, I mean, racism often involves the entire culture, the entire institutions coming down on you. And uh, I don't know for sure, but I imagine that's a terrible, uh, terrible burden and a real challenge to move forward to. Probably something that you work with every day. Let me let me try again. Like I said, you could always, you know, either or. So you are a white man. You're an expert historian. You are informed about racism, white supremacy, but you haven't experienced white supremacy racism. Is that true? Well, I'm a historian, and I mean, there be no way to really know, uh, like, the people that were persecuted by the Klan in Buffalo, who were mostly white people, but Roman Catholics and, and so forth, exactly what they went through. I mean, there's you try your best, you give it a good faith effort to look at and everything, but whether you can perfectly know about that, uh, probably not. And if you're dealing with people from another culture, another race, yeah, it's particularly difficult. Just keep you doing. Make the good, you got to make the good faith effort. Otherwise, you can just say, you know, the heck with it. I'm not up to this task. Uh, I'll let somebody else do it. But. Uh, then I don't think you get any progress on these things. Victims Although, of- I will say, going back to Buffalo and looking at uh, Uvalde and the shooting in, uh, in Tulsa and stuff like that, sometimes it's really hard to see any uh, any progress being made. And I really don't pretend for one second to know what the the answer to all that is. 
victims of white supremacy when we started this conversation and we talked about uh, white people being more refined, covert about practicing racism. And I said with emphasis, one of those ways is not answering questions. Now, just pay attention to how many times I've had to ask the same question. I've not gotten an answer. And in fact, I've said, this is my last question. He could have answered the question and been gone like five minutes ago. One more time, Dr. Lay. So you are a white man, an expert historian. You are informed about racism, but you didn't experience it. Racism, white supremacy. Is that true? No, I haven't. So it's true. You're informed about racism, white supremacy. You haven't experienced it. You're an expert historian. True? Well, yes. <laughs> there we go. But I don't, I don't think there's any historian that writes about anything that has fully experienced what they're writing about, particularly if, you know, it was a long time ago. What if you write about the French Revolution? But I'll answer your question and say, uh, no, I haven't. You're just saying just buckets and buckets of work. That right there, sound clip. Wow. But I will stick to my word. Man, we have been talking it up with Dr. Sean Lay. His book hasn't been mentioned at all. I feel like that should have been mentioned too with Joseph G. Christopher, Hooded Knights on the Niagara, the Ku Klux Klan in Buffalo. New Buffalo, New York to be specific. Much obliged for hanging out with us, uh, Dr. Lay. I learned quite a bit reading your book. Learned even more with our dialogue this evening, afternoon for me. Thank you for chatting it up, answering some of our questions, sir. Okay. It was a pleasurable experience. I, I really like this program. You, you know, it's not happy talk. You push people, make them think about things, and that's a good service. Worthless Negro for oh wait a minute you reminded me hey well since that's the true I guess I'm I'm reneging since all of that is the case hey man I am super motivated Joseph G Christopher I'm facilitating a book club on the case I've been in touch with back black publications in Buffalo I've amassed about 200 articles I would love to make a trek to Buffalo from Seattle to do some research hit the archives at the University of Buffalo and all of that. Can I make a compensatory investment request to you, sir? Is it possible that you could work some way, your white magic, your progressive and all, either allies that you have or you yourself, to facilitate getting me a plane ticket from Seattle to Buffalo, round trip, where I could do some research <laughs> for like two weeks? Is that possible? That seems pretty reasonable. I, I'll tell you what. I'm sure that the Buffalo Historical Society has special fellowships. And they'd be delighted to fly you out there. And not only that, they'd probably put you up as well. You didn't. That's another one. You didn't answer my question, sir. Like that's you could do. That's why I said you have allies. It would be even better coming from an expert historian saying, hey, you all should hook him up as opposed to me just going as some worthless Negro from Virginia. So, again, is that something you would be willing to do? Compensatory investment request. See if you can get me a plane ticket round trip. Seattle, Washington to Buffalo so I can do research. 
Uh, I'll have to think about that. <laughs> think about it. Maybe we got <laughs> laughter again. There we go. That is progressive talk. Much obliged, Dr. Uh, Sean Lay. Think on, sir. Thank you for your time. Okay. Context of white supremacy. Um, we'll take a quick commercial break, and then we'll be right back. Uh, share a quick word and wrap up for the day uh, scheduled for the weekend. All of that good stuff. Wow, we. I almost forgot. I can't believe it. I should have written mine down. That was the same thing I was going to say to uh, listeners. We'll be right back. Give us, you know, 60 seconds and we will rejoin. Context of white supremacy. Let us see. And from the late 1960s, after the death of Martin Luther King and the riots and the upheavals and all like this, and black people with their fists in there and all like that and trying to stumble and fumble and find their way and get focus. The white supremacists made a blueprint and put it in action. And that is, I'm going to have these people so confused, they don't even know what they started out to do. And by the late 1970s, they had just about completed it. And we've been on that ever since. And you mentioned something very important. They are more comfortable than ever. But see, it's like making gorillas comfortable in a cage or monkeys or pandas. You still got them in a cage, but they're comfortable. See, so give him some bling bling. It's like giving an animal a brand new car and training the animal to ride up and down the street in it. And then you stand back and point at the animal. Like one white man said in the late 1950s, he said he doesn't care what kind of car a Negro has. He said he's still a nigger. And when he rides by in a shiny car, to him, it's just a monkey in a car. White people built a car Put a monkey in it, train the monkey to drive the car, so now you're looking at a monkey in a car. See, but black people don't see themselves that way. But this is how the white supremacists see us, and they are the ones who run our business. And we have to know that, that when they look at us, that's what they see. That that's what they see. That that's what they see. And at a subliminal level, what they see begins to spill over into our brains so that we, at a subliminal level, see each other that way and indirectly see ourselves that way. Context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade, worthless Negro from Virginia. We'll get in my notes and then we'll see if folks have any commentary to share. Uh, it should be code from now on, not because people change their behavior. People have done the same thing that they've done for years on the cows, but from now on, Gus T is just doing it the way everybody else does. You will be unmuted to talk and do whatever, and then I'm muting your line. That way, I will never have to worry about being interrupted by any of you ever again. 
I can only make it a point of emphasis that interrupting. And I love it so because this happened. I was talking to someone recently off the air and I interrupted them for some reason. It wasn't even that I had a whole lot to say just to, you know, whatever on what they were saying. And they said, oh, I lost my train of thought. (laughs) Man, that happens all the time. You just not, especially if you're just chatting and you don't have everything written down like oh my goodness like I don't even remember where I'm talking at people interject with just random thoughts I hate this like on a personal level because I think I'm notorious for being on mute I don't ever interrupt you all even when you all are saying things and forgetting and all the rest even then I don't interrupt you all habitually interrupt me and It's not just, oh, I was finished. I'm done. Thanks, Gus. I'm talking. It's not like, oh, thanks, Gus. I'm done. Oh, wait a minute. I have one. We're in the middle of conversation and you interrupt for something random on a personal level. Oh, my God. That is you want to talk about name calling. Oh, I have total disrespect for that. Like, I don't care what you have to say. That's why. That will never happen again. Now we're muting everybody. From a counter-racist perspective, that is so discourteous. It's not your turn to talk. If you were interrupting white guests like that, even then I'd be saying, hey, hush, you all don't do that. It's just Gus. Don't interrupt other victims of racism when they're talking. That happens all the time that's why I make it a point of emphasis to mute my line you all don't do that you just interrupt when you feel like it consistently that's why I keep having to say this with emphasis for months that's why we're not going to have this conversation again I'm muting everybody and we'll just ride on but for counter racist perspective beyond worthless negro in Virginia Gus T hating being interrupted beyond all of that hey Listen, that is what counter racism encourages. I don't care what you have to say, Nigra. I want to talk. Even if it's not even relating to what you all are talking about right now, I'm ready to talk. That's what we get encouraged to do. We don't interrupt white people like that. Not that we should say that like, man, we can't get better with fire your question and forget. It should not be I have to fire and then talk over you where I ask a question it should be ask a question and maybe they don't hear what have you have to repeat not ask and talk over and talk over and talk over like come on like ask your question and because in some environments you don't get that opportunity it's going to be fire and forget I'm saying that as a metaphor specifically because that's a piece of codification from Josh Wicked many times hey the cows you're gonna be muted now Gus is not gonna be interrupted ever again by any of you most of the time that's gonna be the case you're not gonna get a chance to come back in and talk 50,000 times and explain that's why I say write your question down and or refine so that you can just fire and forget you don't have to come and do a lot of explaining and all of that I talked about going to live panels where that's what it's going to be in fact sometimes 
you don't get to talk at all. You have to write your question down so that a person can read it, make sense of it and answer the question because we're not going to be able to go and have you explain for five minutes and this is what I meant and blah 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 all of that said white people do often practice racism and pretending to not understand that's why it is important to refine your question asking (laughs) now that I got all of that out of the way wow all I can conclude it must be like super important point of emphasis. White people are dedicated to the lie that non-white people, we are the experts on racism and white people are ignorant. That must be like critical metaphor that I, in fact, I used that metaphor the other day. Not that Gus T doesn't like metaphors. I use the metaphor. You tell somebody, you tell, hey, Sean Bickens, you are an expert swimmer. What's his name? Mike Phelps? Michael Phelps? He's got nothing on you, Mr. Bickens. You can swim across that lake. Get out there. You can do it. If you tell black people, you all are the greatest swimmers in the history of everything. Nobody knows more about swimming than you all. And then just watch them drown forever. I said, that's what they do with racism. Meanwhile, white people for real are Michael Phelps. Is it Phillips? Phelps? I have to go back and do my Olympic history rife with white supremacy. But Michael Phelps, white man, more gold medals than I can count. Expert at swimming. White people are the experts. They got all the gold medals with regards to white supremacy racism. All of the folks that we talk to here with regards to Buffalo history and racism have been white. Now, there are some black people who are informed. Leah Hamilton, Challenger Community News, Buffalo Challenger. There are folks who are informed, but I mean, the he said, he said, expert historian. All I asked, hey, man. And I'm just following logic here because he said, hey, black people, non-white people are the experts because they experience racism. You To really know something, you have to experience it. Hmm. Is that true? Because I mean, hey, you are, you already told us an expert, isn't it? <laughs> I said that any other time they brag about being experts, then all of a sudden you're an expert on racism. Whoa, 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 whoa. You said you're an expert historian. You did all this research on the Klan. You wrote this book and got the Klan roster and all the names and all this stuff and written multiple books on this subject matter so you are a white man you expert historian are informed on racism but you haven't experienced it you see how many times I didn't even do anything but just ask the same question and point that out to you all I'm just asking the same question that's when I could have written that down fire and forget I didn't explain anything just pointing out wow because he even started down the path of He's a victim of racism. What? I was, oh my God, cracking up laughing like, oh my God, YouTube video. He could, I was going to let him go. I didn't write down that I had a compensatory investment request. That was important too, but I mean, I didn't write it down. I was going to let him go. He could have just said, no, 
that's not true whatever I'm not an expert on all of this or or I did experience racism. They bullied me in the classroom. They called me cracker. They told me to get my cracker ass out of the school. I would have cracked up laughing even more. He could have told us that. You have to have listened to the archives to, you know, catch all that. Anyway, uh, he could have said that's not what he did. He didn't answer the question and he every time we got I didn't even play the buckets of words sound clip until he finished all that because I was in Are you serious? You could get on with your Sunday, but no, you would rather just give me total white refined. Exactly what he said. Refined, covert. And again, wow, this must be really important. The amount of white expert whites that we've had on the program from all over the world who insist non-white people, the Negras are the experts on racism. Mm -hmm. Let's see. Uh, Anything else I wanted to make sure I get in? I should have asked Anna Blotto. That will be my request for, I have to see as many white people as possible that we can get on because I feel like that is a very low bar metaphor meaning that I mean that's not asking for Mercedes Benz you have individuals classified as white who have you know frequent flyer miles where what this nigga wants to go to Buffalo they would just do that for the fun of it like whatever or pay for it to get the frequent flyer miles like sure great give me the miles let's do it right on have fun nigga I feel like that's a really and particularly for Buff, like, oh, yes, yes, yes. Send the nigger to Buffalo. Yes, yes. Mm. So as many white people as we can get, that will be Gus T's compensatory. And I have to do this like with essence because it is really cold. It, it is really cold in Seattle. Like It has been under 60 degrees like the entire month of June, which is substantially lower than the average Seattle, Washington temperature. I have not. I have never had to wear my winter clothes into July. Looks like that is going to happen this year, 2021. (sighs) Anywho, we have to go to Buffalo like way before like October. I'm thinking it probably gets what I would think cold like September, (laughs) maybe even August. Like I cannot snow is not going to happen. So it cannot be any time like late October onward. We would have to wait until like May of 2020 because I don't even want to be there when it's like 40 or anything like that because yeah gotta do time as of the effings I would much rather go in the summertime do my research and get back while it's still warm and hopefully it'll be nice and warm here when I get back anywho more if you can find white people that you think we could talk about all this compensatory investment request until justice at gmail.com Alrighty, let's see. Folks have it. The book club is mandatory. You see how many guests that we've had on have not had any understanding information about all of this. Now, many of these folks lived through the Buffalo event. He said he was 68. So, I mean, he was alive and studying scholar in all this. Uh, and, and he was in Buffalo in 86, like G whiz. They were still talking about all of this in the 80s. And, and they did like, retrospectives 10 years afterwards in like 92 93 I have some of the reports like when he was there teaching like how do you not bump into this case 
crosses were burned. Your researching clan activity in Buffalo, crosses were burned here within the last 10 years. Clan, remember that they had the clan that came and disrupted Glenn Dunn's How was that missed? Incidentally, would not surprise me at all if, what's his name? Uh, Dr. Lay went to Buffalo and did do the research on Joseph G. Christopher and uh, Peyton Gendron and did gave no credit to Gusty uh, for getting that information would not surprise me at all, even though we're not we would not be working on the same project at all. Not even close. Uh, Let's see. Book club is mandatory. Got to know who Joseph G. Christopher is. We have not even got to the substantial chunks of the book yet. Friday, excuse me, Thursday, 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 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, let's see. Folks who dialed in, if you have commentary to share, now you can talk and do not have to interrupt Gus T. I will mute so that I don't mute you or interrupt you all either. Uh, the folks who dialed in, uh, if you have commentary, line should be open. Uh, if we didn't hear from you and you just dialed in and have commentary to share, uh, star six one, and we can add you if you have thoughts to share. Uh, I reckon uh, you can feel free to share if you, you know, think, hey, man, I do not see where any of this information about the history of Buffalo is relevant. You can feel free to share that as well. I guess I would at least can think about that moving forward. Maybe it's not necessary to have all this Buffalo history, but I think it's super uh, relevant, counter-racist purposes, but you can share that. Also, the exchange at the end. It's lots of things I could point out, but man, the exchange. Oh, wait a I guess it is one more. That whole bit about privacy. That's why I was so disgruntled. Like, man, you bring up the marriage thing. I'm right in line talking about that. They interrupt me about Dr. Like, man, you should have asked that on your turn. <laughs> that bit about the privacy. Like, man. Gus T does his homework like oh my god this nigra is the worst yes I read your book cover to cover the audacity because we've had a number of guests white and non-white write these cotton picking books and put in there bragging about the fact that yeah I'm swirling and boast about it put their chest out and then you come on the program and ask them about this and it's whoa 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 that is private man you put it in a book bragging about the fact that you got a non-white wife now it's private you didn't just put it in the book he volunteered that information why bring it up for individuals classified as white they are accustomed to talking to super confused negras and I mean hey I would have a hard time giving you evidence that Gus T is not one of those super confused niggers, but at minimum, I do grasp you being a white man in some sort of sexual arrangement with a non-white person. That is nothing to applaud when white people see that then, Oh, this is private. If we had been swirling, love it scandal woo, love if it had been that totally it would have been private don't write about it we had non-white people did and write me nasty letters too after they put it in the book man yes i read the whole book even that part where you talked about your non-white spouse yes and he put it at the beginning that's you put it at the beginning like the first 10 pages 
bragging about the fact that yes I am sexually sewering this non-white female so-called Asian Woody Allen maybe at the very beginning that's what we're supposed to think about is we we don't even get to all of the information about the clan in Buffalo swirling got it super important alrighty let's see folks who dialed in with a hand up I will mute and you all can share if you have thoughts especially you can share whatever you want but that last exchange gotta be in you gotta experience racism to be informed about it really you're an expert historian he bragged about that too and you're informed about racism how many times because I mean that is sound kind of make a video of that uh, folks who died in with a hand up proceed that's why that's why I use the example of a physician and I thought I was I thought I was being logical in in uh, explain uh, in in the entry to my question to him by using a physician because a physician is a trained expert <clears throat> and they are trained experts on certain fields of medicine. In other words, a heart surgeon or someone who is in general uh, about health in itself. Uh, and they should be able to give a patient slash victim uh, some suggestions. And, and he is exactly within that within that logic by him being not only a historian but a historian uh i forgot the word emeritus which is an awarded historian and it is it is i don't want to use the word frustrating because i'm not surprised by it but uh it 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 does kind of like makes me grind my teeth anytime I hear a white person. But the only thing keeps me from losing my temper is the uh, code of being courteous. But I think it's BS uh, for a white person to either say, no, they don't have any suggestions or as uh, he is like the second white person that came to come on this program to state that uh the state that uh something about that they uh uh I, I forget on what the 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 uh the uh answer is to it other than they're not giving any suggestions and whatnot because uh i i i think i know from the standpoint that uh under a global system of racist white supremacy White people enjoy their benefits of being a white person, whether whether it's conscious or whether it's it's, it's out in the open or uh, it's unconscious. They they're aware that they benefit from it and they don't want to give it up. They're trained not to give out any information. But uh, the, the last part of your question, uh, did he? So he mentioned about. He mentioned about uh, uh, when you asked him that last question that uh, non-white, the tr- traditional white, 
racist suspect answer that non-white people are, are more aware of racism and white supremacy. Is that that's what that's basically what he was saying? Correct. You know, I mean, <laughs> ugh, makes me want to kick a wall or something. You know, but anyway, that's that's all I had to say. Thank you. Because they know better. Much obliged, retired firefighter in Florida. Other folks who dialed in, do you have commentary? Hello. Can you hear me? Irie in Louisiana. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Um, I want to start by apologizing. Um, I know a couple times I tried to slide in something that I forgot. Um, my, I admit my memory a little bit slipshod. Um, but for me, what I try to do is time it just right. It, but you're right. It happens too much. Um, so that's the right protocol. But I just want to say, you know, on behalf of myself, I apologize because I've tried to, oh, shoot, I've got something and try to jump in the rope or, well, sorry, jump in, you know, right before you might say something and it'll be like, right on the verge of you saying something and it's like damn it <laughs> i made a mistake um and i know how you feel about it so i me especially i don't you know want to do that and have you frustrated on your own show um but the people the non-white people of buffalo new york need to make a decision at this point to either do a mass exodus or take up codify some major uh, defense or, um, you know, some type of defensive posture in in this city because I never would have known that so many things had occurred without context of white supremacy. There was no indication that this was like a, a, a repeat situation there, there has been no acknowledgement of a sundown town being adjacent. Um, this, even though New York, you know, it, it's, you know, is segregated or I don't know. No, let me not say segregated. The, the racists do make sure to center themselves away from the non-white people in such a way that's obvious, but not spoken on. So because of that, you know, the, the non-white people are confused about it, but they should not be because this happened before. And wow, the books you've discovered discussing the topic is just outrageous. Um, to the gentleman, he's just a good reminder of, you know, kind sounding acting nicely packaged white people look at me i'm writing about white supremacy it's it's um it's like it's just a way to deflect for them off of their part in the system i think he feels because he's written so much about the, the topic and you know publicly and he's like oh yeah Go go check out this place for the records. Yeah, I'll let you know uh, where where the Ku Klux Klan logs are. And yeah, I'll, I'll you know like basically I I don't want to use a metaphor, but I guess he may feel like he's lightweight snitching on him or something. But you're still white, sir, 
And when asked a simple question, you use your non-white wife as a shield. You know what I'm saying? Like you practicing racism, bro. You know, <laughs> and I don't want to harp on it. And you not you, so you don't want to give up nothing. Just say that. Like the one lady I asked one time, she just said, "I ain't trying to give up nothing." Okay, respect. Like don't use your uh, your Asian wife who isn't from America. So she really probably is confused too, just like black people about how this works. You know, and but he feels like it doesn't apply to him. White supremacy is a problem. It's not his problem because he's not a victim and he doesn't feel like he's perpetrating it. And that's all I want to say. Much obliged, uh, Irie. Uh, yes. He's had uh, that. See, that's why I said you can't you can't write about and or volunteer that you are swirling, quote unquote. And then as soon as that's not going to be celebrated, as people have some questions about that or just bring that as that, hey, I'm not just a white man. I'm, you know, I'm swirling the impact in her. Well, I was thinking Woody Allen, Warbride. I was thinking quite a bit, quite a bit. Uh, I think I even talked to her. I said last week, all of this was a blur because I was not per se looking for him. I found him in preparation for Anna Blotto. So that was where my focus was. But I called, which I normally don't do. I had said, I said, I hate that. So this would be one exception to the rule where one time I talked to the person on the phone in advance and it was not like horrendous on the program within the first three seconds that is generally what happens white or non-white that did not happen this time around it was brief the conversation because I had other things to do and what have you but I think his non-white partner answered the phone and she had like a heavy uh accent and if I had been like I I said I think I saw pictures like I told I said all this yesterday I posted this information that he was in a tragic arrangement all that yesterday when I told people about this program I said I think you can look and see like pictures of him online with non-white people where it looked like that sort of thing was going on but my focus was not there until you know it was time to focus on him then I kind of remembered and started putting it all together but like yeah that's Woody Allen talked about that before other folks other folks have commentary Oh, good. I just want to let you know that you are smarter than the average runaway. In the words of Paul Mooney, he, he likes to push back. That's what I thought of immediately. <laughs> one one last thing, uh, because I, I the, the question that I had had about uh, uh, the people activity of sex came up based on him bragging uh about his uh sexual relationship with uh with a non white person and uh because i i have i have in my my question portfolio uh in, immediately when I find out a white person is having sex with a non white person uh certain questions and uh that's why because the only question that I was going to ask him was the was the one about uh 
was the one about that I normally ask about uh, uh, suggestions, and that's what white people are, are duty bound to supposed to give to non-white people is uh, suggestions on things that would be constructive uh, uh, and would uh, contribute towards ending the system of racist white supremacy. That's what they're supposed to do. And uh, all of these white people come on this program or that I encounter myself personally, uh, you know, they, they are reluctant. They're, they're reluctant. That's the nice thing to say that they're reluctant. They're, they're done right. Just, I'm not going to do that, uh, type of thing. And, uh, so if that's the case, then you might as well shut up on it just about anything else, you know, and, uh, just let us know that yes, I am your enemy, you know, outright, you know, but anyway, just a thought. What is the difference between disclosure and then bragging? Because I understood that he was disclosing his marital status. I don't really think that he was bragging. Are you classified as white or not white? Excuse me? Are you classified as white or not white, sir? Non-white. Okay. You, my definition, he was bragging about being married to a non-white person. This was something he was sharing not for suspicion or interrogation, he was sharing this as something that would impress bragging would impress us showing off. This will wow them. That's I've seen this behavior consistently from individuals classified as white. I think we've interviewed a number of them where this is not presented as, Oh, wait a minute. They'll think this could be Thomas Jefferson and ask me some questions that prove, provide some evidence that it's not. This will be something where they will think I am a good white person. I am not racist. There is no way I could possibly be married to a non-white person and still be racist. Ten times out of nine. And that's the way I meant to say it. Non-white people, we are impressed, brag, impressed by that sort of display, tragic arrangement. Does that make sense, sir? No, because... He didn't say anything to say that he felt some kind of pride or as he didn't add any more value from, I don't know what the exact quote was in the book, but from what he said was just that he was married to a non-white person or an Asian person. That's disclosure. And in most books, the preface or the introduction, they do that kind of thing where they, you know, they talk a little bit about themselves so that you get an understanding of who they are and how they are as an author, then they go into their book. So disclosures are very common and it's very brief. That VGQ, Victims Guaranteed Qualified, he doesn't have to. And yes, for detail, and there we go again, you might be muted as well, sir, with the interrupting because I didn't interrupt you. Disclosures are common. This is on page Eight. And as I said, this is not a disclosure for 
interrogation as all of the other information is. This is, if you have questions about it, it's private. This sort of disclosure, if you want to call it that, as long as it will be perceived in a constructive, as I said, this will disarm non-white people, we will be impressed. This is a good white person, meaning a white person who does not practice racism. When And 10 times out of 9, as I said, because non-white people do not, contrary to what he said, we are not informed experts on racism. We are greatly confused emphasis bold letter print greatly confused by a white person in some sort of tragic arrangement sexual activity with a non-white person so yes in my view particularly talking to non-white people that is bragging when you're revealing that if you're not willing to just have it be disclosed up for interrogation it's got to be accepted as something constructive and positive but again Victims guaranteed qualified. Can I ask another question? Let's hear it. Yes, sir. This question is to you. Is there a difference between, as an interviewer, between in nature and tone, a conversation and an interrogation? Is there a difference when you interview? How what, how would you characterize your interviews? Either or. I'm talking to someone that I suspect is a racist white supremacist. So if you want to call that an interrogation, that's fine. If you want to call that an interview, that's fine. But I, victim of white supremacy, I'm talking to someone I suspect is a racist white supremacist especially given his conduct today and in addition he's in a tragic arrangement sexual intercourse with a non-white person that's automatic you're not even on the suspect list so either or would be acceptable and logical for me as a victim of white supremacy did you hear the very beginning of the interview when he said that it's logical for anyone classified as not white to be suspicious of anybody classified as white, including him. Did you hear his answer? Yes, that is logical based on evidence. He is an expert historian. Did you hear that exchange? Yes, I did. Okay. So my next question is regarding that. Since you're in the privileged position of being the interviewer. Oh, oh, whoa, sir. I reject in every way possible that I am in the so-called pri- maybe you haven't heard this program before but that word alone like that's one yes I'm going to interrupt immediately because I don't even use that word privilege I don't say white privilege or anything other I am a victim of white supremacy I am never in the so-called privilege position never okay I'll retract the word since you're the interviewer would it not be best for all of us, the listeners, if you, if the tone was a little more conversational so that we can extract as much information and then after the interviewer, after the interview, then editorialize on what the author or the person is, 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 has said? It appears that you're, you're, you're editorializing right when the person's in front of you, and it seems a little bit, from my position, as a little bit rude. So... 
And I feel like you're taking away from any answers that we can extract from him or her. That's my VGQ. That may be the case, sir. Uh, I can say my goal is not per se to have a conversation. As I said, I'm talking to someone I suspect is a racist, white supremacist. That's why I said if you want to call it an interrogation, you can call it that. I think it is important that individuals classified as white be questioned with suspicion because this doesn't happen. I see non-white people talk to white people, as you said, in a conversational tone. Nobody edit. I don't really know what you mean when you say that editorializes. No one gives their view gives their interpretation of what the white person has said, not said, if they answer the question, the type of words that they've used in their response, that doesn't happen. People just go along with the dialogue and boom, 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 boom. Now, maybe you could do that after the person left. I don't do that. What's my reason for not doing that? I want the non-white person to hear me use logic live time and even if that means saying hey I think you're practicing racism right now to hear that and hear what that white person says and respond like the last exchange when we have to ask a question over and over and over before he finally says oh yeah I guess I am a expert historian and I am informed about racism even though I didn't experience all of that tackiness I'm of the opinion that non-white people, because we are so confused and because white people are not interrogated, white people are not interviewed with suspicion, white people are not questioned, and certainly it's not pointed out, hey, you're lying, sir. Hey, ma'am, you're lying. That doesn't happen. We just troll off in all of our confusion. I'm of the opinion that all of that needs to happen live time. You can hear the white person's response. Am I being logical? Even in the accusations and saying that you're practicing racism. Let's hear what their response is to that. All of that, I think, is very important, especially because it doesn't happen. Now, maybe it could be best to save all of the analysis until after it's done. My memory isn't as bad. Again, I think it's much better. Let's hear what the white person has to say right now. I don't want it to be said that I got to wait and talk behind their back or what have you. I can make my charge right here and let the accused have their say if this is an interrogation. That's valid, Gusty. I think I admire your admire your position. I think it's very valid and I think you're very brave in fact for doing it that way. Um, just one qualifier though. So when you have a, a guest have you told them what your position is and that they're going to be uh, questioned in that nature because I'm, I'm always kind of at a loss because of that I and this came up on Thank the you. last program my fault did I interrupt make sure I didn't jump in no I was just going to say thank you for letting me ask this question and I'm done okay uh, this came up on the program a week ago basically Anna Blado now she said live time on the air she said, let me do the same thing I did with her. She said live time on the air that you uh, basically invited me under false pretense. You said that you were going to discuss my her report 
on so-called segregation in Buffalo and how it relates to the shooting of Peyton Jenner. And I asked her, what's your recollection? All that she gave that. And I told her this was another moment where she had a different opinion, just like you. She said, well, I don't think you did that (laughs) with her. I disagree. We did do that. And two, we would have done a lot more of it, but she practiced racism in really flagrant ways. And I pointed that out live time as we were going along. And the same thing that I just said, I think that that is very affected because non-white people don't do that. We sit there and just go along and let them say whatever they're going to say and practice racism and lie and say things that are total nonsense. BS as retired firefighters said, and then wait until they're gone. No, 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 no. I want right now. And if I'm logical, hey, we have got a whole lot of these white people to affirm. Yep, it is logical. Now, I might not agree and all that, but you are being logical. I think that is way affected because, again, that doesn't happen. Now, I'll read you exactly what I said uh, to. Oh, I can't do it. I can't. This is one of the few times I can't do it because I said I was going to read you the email, but there is no email because I called them. So I have to, I can read you what I what I said to Anna Blotto. I don't know if you heard that program or not, but this is what I said to her. I called Dr. Lay. So we have done literally thousands of programs. I think I have probably called. I didn't have a phone for the first 217 programs. I think I've probably called less than 50 guests, probably less than 40. We've done over, well over 2000 programs. I have not called 40 guests on the phone. I don't think it's always email. Always, 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 always. Even after I have two phones now and it's still always email. Uh, I will read you what I wrote to Anna Blotto because this is kind of generally what and I think this is what I would have said about Buffalo because she also we were talking about the same subject matter. So this is what I wrote to uh, Anna Blotto. Let me see. Uh, Okay, I told her. All right. My name is Gus and I operate a talk radio program focused on race. I do that deliberately, not white supremacy, racism, race. We make an effort to share constructive information on politics, current events, and literature. We, like much of the country, have been stunned by the terrorist attack in Buffalo. I've been studying studying the history of race done deliberately in the area and found your 2018 report on the history of segregation in Buffalo painfully relevant. We'd love to have you as a guest on the... Gusty is a clown. I did use the word love also deliberately. We'd love to have you as a guest on our program. I've not seen enough quality reporting that discusses the history of black residents in Buffalo or why they only have the one tops on Jefferson Avenue to access groceries. Now, I did have that in my notes, but we didn't get to that because she started talking about affirmative action. Amongst other aspects where she practiced racism, but I did have that in my notes to talk about. I had a sound clip for it and everything, but she started doing other things to practice racism, which took precedent over getting to some of those other details. Continuing the challenger community news. Uh, that's Linda Hamilton. I mentioned them already today has been superb in sharing details with us. And we love to hear uh, from more Buffalo residents with a lived knowledge of this space. We'd appreciate the chance to discuss your research and how it relates to this strategy uh, tragedy. 
I'm sure your spring calendar remains congested and we'll do all that we can to conform to your schedule. Now, I mean, now this man, Dr. Lay got wait, because I think I just told him, like, we've been talking about the Buffalo terrorism. I found your book on the Klan. It'd be great to talk about this in context. And he said, sure, that's what we did. <laughs> like, what else? What else? What else am I supposed to say? If I could flip it back, am I, what else am I supposed to say? Or what what which am I supposed to include that we're going to interrogate you with suspicion and talk to you as though you are a suspected racist? Do I say that? No. Am I supposed to say that when I ask? You're asking me if, well, I would just remind them the nature at the beginning of the interview, something to the sort of, thank you for coming on the show. We're going to ask uh, a few hard questions, and I may, and I may insist on a few answers. It's preferable, preferable if you answer with a yes and then expand so that we get a clear answer from you. Something like that, just very short. I think that's the majority of what maybe I might not agree with or maybe I find a little cringy. But um, I, I think you're valid. I think you, what you're saying, what you do, I mean, up to the nature of the show, I think it's valid. It's just a, a little bit of the tone. It just makes, I don't know about others, but for me, for, for a while, it's a little uncomfortable. And I would think that you, with a little bit of sweetness and quotations, we could, get, we could get so much more. But this is my opinion. This is just my opinion. And this is what I've seen, for example, in the Nova Scotia Commission, uh, to find out who's at fault or what happened in the system for that massacre there. You should see the style. It's very, okay, I'm just going to ask you a question. Okay, I'm going to move on to the next question. Okay, and then may, maybe they come back and they ask the question differently, and then they move on to the next question. It's a very different style, and I would just find that there are things there maybe that we can learn, especially when talking in the code to white people or to their code, right? They have this kind of, kind of like a politeness, and they go back and forth until they till they catch you and they don't even let you know that they catch you they just move on and then they just write it all up and next thing you know you're fired so i guess that's where i'm going to guys it's not really an insult i just I, I admire your style i think you you can pull it off very nicely it's just sometimes it's a little cringy on and difficult to hear but that's my opinion sir that's all i'm not trying to give you critique or anything much obliged i think i said at the very beginning of the program worthless Negro from Virginia and I guess just so that we can be can I ask a question like how long have you listened to the cows like have you is this your first time or have you been listening for a day or a week or no for years off and on for this very same reason but you think you do an amazing job I've always said this it's just sometimes it's a little difficult to hear only because I know I live with white people and I work with white people and I know that it's difficult for them so I kind of identify with them sometimes. Oh, my Lord. (laughs) Oh, my Lord. But, you know, in the sense that I know that they want to say more but they feel slighted and they feel insulted so then they clam up and that's, like, not what we want to do. We want to get as much out out of them. That's all, sir. I don't want to say anymore. I think that's enough. He said, identify with the white people. That right there, like wow we've done whole programs on white identification i can only get we went overtime i'm just you know two things i'll say really quick uh, and then we can wrap things up number one this has come up for years i can only say i've concluded it's not that white people clam up because gusty is not sweet i think the white guest that we had today white people are dedicated to white supremacy racism so I don't really think it matters much if I was sweet 
hostile, rude, calm, quiet, white people are dedicated to white supremacy, racism. Two, I have concluded white people, when they don't answer these questions, they're not clamming up because they're talking to a Negro who's hostile. As I said, hey, what's the excuse for all the other gabillion interviews that white people do with non-white people where they do the exact same thing? BS, I think, was the technical term used lie and not answer questions when the non-white people are as sweet as can be if we want to use that metaphor which I mean wow (laughs) Gus T has talked about those metaphors for a lot of reasons because sometimes they say you are sweet if you are engaged in anti-sexual behavior anywho I have also said for years because this is not modeled we do not see white people talk to non-white people with suspicion and point out you're practicing racism you didn't answer even just that not (laughs) you're practicing racism sir ma'am you didn't answer my questions and even pause because he said with sweetness and quotations sir I submit I don't think you hear anybody white or non-white do a podcast with more quotations than Gusty Renegade that notwithstanding white guests coming on the program you hear them not challenged many many times I've said for years because of that many many victims non-white people all over the world have said they cringe when hearing the cows they too identify with individuals classified as white I've heard that for years that right there is the power of white supremacy racism that white man has been insulted that no count gusty I have said I mean I talk about you all I said it's in the archives I have had times over these 13 years where I have been listening to the archives and kind of forgot that I was listening to myself and said oh my god who is this coon talking to this white woman or white man like this why is this being allowed who can we call to put a stop to it I have said that that's not supposed to happen in the system I hear white people be I am not rude or insulting. I am sir, ma'am, doctor. I quote from everybody's book. I, unlike Cow's listeners, do not interrupt our white guests. I'm not insulting at all. I hear white hosts be rude and nasty all the time with their guests. That's not gusty. I do use counter-racist logic. I do call a white person a suspected racist from time to time which does not happen which I think probably makes many victims of racism cringe even in fact I think just identifying individuals as white it seems sometimes means to seems to make non-white people cringe we've been trained as our listener said we have been conditioned to identify with individuals classified as white even when they are practicing racism, even when they are raping 
non-white people. That's what white supremacy racism means. So, for 13 years, worthless Negro from Virginia. Yes, I know that. (laughs) Very much so. And no admiration needed or earned. When we solve this problem, that will be something to admire. But that is very common. All I can say is there are many, many, many programs where you will not have to cringe. You can hear white people say whatever they want and be unchallenged. That's not this environment. Context of white supremacy. All of that's it from the privileged position. He said, I'm at the bottom of the slave ship. All of that said, no sweetness here either. Uh, any way you want to take that word. That's it. We'll be here for the book club on Thursday. Absolute madness. Mandatory. My goodness. 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Hopefully folks have learned something because uh, we are trying to learn. So hopefully people uh, didn't have too many cringes. They actually could learn something about the history of Buffalo and even what he said about white people hey collectively dedicated racism white supremacy all levels of white society we did even get some good details out of the book as we maybe I don't know maybe people didn't they missed all of that because the worthless negro that does happen sometimes too anywho much obliged for everyone participating hopefully we did not waste your Sunday evening afternoon uh sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy racism like man we will need high functioning brain computers to solve this problem in addition to being sober when you're out and about man be thinking Peyton Gendron Dylan Storm Roof armed race soldiers if you are not ready to die kill right now exit You do not want to have any of these incidents where they are prepared and trained. You are not. If you're in a vehicle, you're sober, buckled up, not on your mobile device. Uh, We need all of our attention and are trying to do the small things that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers, badge or no. All of that said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately cow signing out Thanks all for tuning in. No name calling, no gossiping, no reckless production of offspring. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. Man, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs>